Midnight Owl Live, the show for PC users who can handle the truth. And now, here's your host, Gene Steinberg. Hey neighbors, this week on the Tech Night Out Live, we'll have Neil Tickton, the publisher and editor-in-chief of Mac Tech Magazine. He'll talk about data throttling and what that is all about. We'll learn about the golden age of radio, before there was talk radio, before disc jockeys. The golden age with Greg Bell of Sirius XM Satellite Radio's Radio Classics. And then we'll hear from Dan Frakes on the Tech Night Out Live. <laughs> We have Neil Tickton. He's the publisher and editor-in-chief of Mac Tech Magazine, which, as the name implies, is designed for the rather tech-savvy amongst you who are interested in Macs and Apple products. But we're going to be talking not to tech gurus here. We're going to talk to regular people. And Neil, welcome to the Tech Night Out Live. And I want to start with something that's become an issue in the world of smartphones and iPhones, a controversy over what we call data throttling. And it's not something where they stick something around your neck. It's where they stick something around your data. Explain, Neil. <laughs> well, first, thanks for having having me on. Uh, it's not well something that they stick around your neck, but it's something they stick around the neck of your phone. Might be a better way to say it. So in, in the beginning, with both uh, the iPhone and the iPad, for, uh, for that matter, Apple talked about having these great plans with AT&T, really groundbreaking kind of things where they talked about uh, being able to do data, not worrying about how much data you were using, having unlimited plans. It was really part of the whole pitch of the iPhone and the initial iPad announcements as well. As time went on, AT&T has had an incredibly difficult time, as have many of the networks, but AT&T maybe more than the others, of keeping up with the bandwidth usage of their, of especially their high-end users. I heard one statistic just recently from somebody in the wireless industry that said that this year, data usage by AT&T users is expected to increase by a factor of six, a 600% increase of data usage. And it's, of course, very difficult for a company like AT&T to go through and keep up with that kind of demand, even though they're getting a whole lot of people using a whole lot of units and a whole lot of revenue for it, it's just physically difficult to build out networks that quickly. And part of the problem is something that Steve Jobs said during one of the Apple events, which is, you know, in some cities, you can set up a new cell phone tower in a few months. But in places like San Francisco, the zoning laws are such that neighborhood people will come and say, I don't want that unsightly thing on my building. Don't put it there, and it could take years. It's actually, you can't really do it based on, on look. It has to be proof of coverage and whatnot. Under the, the Telecommunications Act that came into place under uh, President Clinton, the Federal Tele Telecommunications Act, a city cannot actually deny an antenna going into place, not even a full tower, just even an antenna going into place if the cell companies are meeting certain requirements, such as you know, certain safety requirements by the FCC, certainly building requirements and things along those lines. But one of the, of the criteria is whether there is coverage in an area. There can be difficulties with somebody not wanting to lease out their own private property. But once a location has been determined, and that is something that's viable, the cities themselves don't have the ability to turn that away. And you've seen many lawsuits over time from the cell phone companies against a city or a county or whatever for not allowing something in. And usually what you see is them overturned. And when you you don't see them overturned and the site allowed to be going in, then what ends up happening is that you end up just, um, uh, there's some good reason for that, like there was already good coverage there or something along those lines. So it's a little bit of a misnomer in the way that, that Steve Jobs said it, but uh, it can be very difficult to find good locations for cell antennas overall, and that's part of what he was saying. But 
going back to the throttling issue, what ends up happening is that these cell phone companies, and Verizon's doing similar kinds of things, saying, look, we need to take this, this upper, say, top 5% of users that's really, in their mind, being abusive of the unlimited data, and we're going to go ahead and we're going to start throttling them back. And what throttling means is that they start to slow down their data usage, and they can actually slow it down so much that they become unusable. In the case of this one resident from Southern California who had sued AT&T in small claims court, he was actually able to prove that his throttling happened at, at far less than not only you know what he had originally signed up for in the unlimited plan, but also far less than the plans that are available for even less money today. Now, so that's an interesting point. Let's kind of yeah. be specific about this. Yeah. Okay. The unlimited plan is grandfathered. In other words, if you signed up for it, you can keep it forever, I guess, right. or until AT&T changes their mind, whichever comes first. Or you buy one of the tiered plans, which right. gets you, you know, two, three gigabytes of download. Right. And so the theory being here, at least AT&T's justification is, if you are an extreme user, yes, which means you're using a lot more than they expect you to use, they have the right to throttle that portion of customers. I gather not just for that day, but until their next billing period resumes. Right. One would think that that's the way it's working, and it does appear to be the case. In the case of this one resident who, who actually is in the same valley where MacTech is, is uh, based out of, he was seeing throttling happening at one and a half gigabytes of usage. And that's, of course, far less than both the two and even the three gigabyte uh, tiered plans that we've already seen. And so he was showing that that was the case. Now, in his case, he was doing something that was not intended to be done on the iPhone. He was tethering and, and using his iPhone as a way to connect to connect his laptop to the internet. And that's not something that AT&T was ever wanting to be done. So there is something of a case that AT&T has here. But that said, the judge ruled in favor of this gentleman and, and awarded him in small claims court $850, which he was able to prove as his amount of damages for the uh, overusage that um, AT&T would charge him uh, for the data that, that went along. So there's he had to show how he was being damaged by this. You can't just have an unlimited plan and then not run into the throttling and then still expect to win in small claims court. Now, the thing I wonder is, after winning this, did suddenly his performance get back to normal, or is AT&T appealing? Well, AT&T is talking about appealing. And the thing is, is that in small claims court, you don't have attorneys that represent you. And it's something that you go in and represent yourself with. There's a limit as to how much you can get. Uh, most small claims courts, depending on where you are in the in the country, might be you know three, four, maybe five thousand dollars is my understanding as to the the top limit of damages that you can get on the small claims action. With that in mind, some people are just not going to take the time to go through and and do it. There's a series of of steps that you need to think about and consider. And of course, that's what the MacTech article was about this week. Was some of the things you need to be prepared for. You need to think about as to whether this is worthwhile. But if AT&T goes ahead and appeals it, it's going to be interesting to see how they would do that since you're not allowed to have attorneys represent you in small claims court. But you can have an individual file that appeal. But you see, we assume even if AT&T has their spokesperson appeal, Mm -hmm. that appeal will still be written by attorneys because that's how it's going to work. And obviously any argument that person presented during this hearing had to be pre-approved and or rehearsed 
with the attorneys. Part of the of the job of the judge is to kind of cut through that and get down to what they feel are the issues as opposed to the packaged uh, PR that AT&T may want to have. But this could also be the tip of the iceberg. You have to think here, what if a thousand AT&T yeah. customers who had been throttled now go to small claims court in various jurisdictions to file? Now, I understand it has to be in a place where the defendant, being AT&T, does business, which is just about anywhere in the U.S., Right. There's always going to be a local outlet, a local authorized dealer, some place where AT&T has a presence. Even if they have just a tower, they're technically doing business there. Therefore, they could be forced to send representatives to thousands of places. Yes. And this yes. doesn't stop attorneys from filing class action lawsuits. No, but the AT&T license agreement does. So when you signed up with AT&T and you agreed to their terms and conditions, the legalese that most people don't bother reading, one of the things that it does say in there is, is that you are giving up your rights to do a class action suit. So that's how a class action suit is being avoided with AT&T, is that they've written it right into the agreement that people have agreed to when they signed up for the service to begin with. So in this particular case, the only way way to get back at AT&T is to file the individual suit, which in a sense is more injurious because with a class action lawsuit, let's look at the one with the iPhone 4 antenna, antenna gate. Yes. Because that's a very telling example and it raises the entire question of how foolish these class action lawsuits are because there we go back to antenna gate. The theory being, of course, if you hold the iPhone 4 the wrong way, which is the junction of the antennas, the lower left-hand corner. Right. You can almost think of it as shorting out the antenna, if you will. It's not it's not technically a short, but you're, yeah. you're you're messing it up. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live. Say, wouldn't it be great if that computer keyboard sitting on your desk also worked with your iPhone? Sending a text message would be lightning fast. This is exactly the idea behind the Matthias One keyboard for iPhone and Mac. You just need to experience it once to see how incredibly fast and convenient it really is. It's also available for the PC and BlackBerry. Visit onekeyboard.com slash TNO. Once again, onekeyboard.com slash T-N-O. You know, we develop trust in the people we know, but we don't really know someone we can see. That's why I recommend GoToMeeting with HD Faces. It's a simple online meeting service. It's GoToMeeting by Citrix. All it takes is a webcam and a click to instantly collaborate. You can start hosting your own face-to-face online meetings today with GoToMeeting. You can try it free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code podcast. Have you ever felt like the United States government knows way too much about your financial affairs? I continue to hear stories about property seizures, frozen bank accounts, confiscation of stocks and bonds. It makes me wonder if the U.S. citizen will ever again have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Unfortunately, with the Drug and Money Laundering Act, the IRS Revenue Ruling 6045 of 1984, and the Trading with the Enemy Act and Franklin D. Roosevelt's Executive Order of 1933, some precious metal holdings are subject to government intervention. For this reason, Midas Resources has prepared a report explaining the boundaries of trading precious metals privately. Whether if you have any intention of trading with Midas Resources or not, I have instructed my representatives to give this report out free. Call for your free copy at 1-800-686-2237. When investing, always proceed with caution. Again, call 1-800-686-2237. Exercise your legal right to trade metals privately. 1-800-686-2237. Hey there, you've reached Claire. Leave me a message. 
Claire, it's Anne. Hey, you know that hormone balancing product we talked about before? The all-natural one, Amberin? Well, I gotta tell you this. Not only did Amberin stop my hot flashes, but since I started the Amberin program, I have lost so much weight. Seriously, even my belly fat, it's gone. I haven't been this thin in years. I feel great. Give me a call. The leading cause of weight gain in women over 40 is hormonal imbalance. Until you balance your hormones, it can be practically impossible to lose weight. Amberin restores hormonal balance naturally so the weight can just fall off yes even that stubborn belly fat plus amberin eliminates other symptoms of hormonal aging too so with your hormones in balance you can feel great and finally lose the weight be one of the first 50 callers right now and they'll send you a complimentary risk-free trial with a 30-day supply free call 1-800-839-2959 that's 1-800-839-2959 1-800-839-2959 Hi, this is Alex Jones. Did you know that the global elite are now storing non-hybrid seeds in secret storage vaults near the Arctic Circle? Did you know that in a real meltdown, non-hybrid seeds can become more valuable than silver or gold? It's true, seeds have outperformed even gold and silver before in this country, and it's possible that could even happen again. So our friends at Solutions from Science have put together the perfect mix of non-hybrid seeds. They call it a survival seed bank, and it can produce an endless supply of nutrient-dense food for you and your family. And here's the best part. These seeds have not been genetically modified in any way, and you actually get enough seeds to plant a full-acre crisis garden. So visit them today at survivalseedbank.com. That's survivalseedbank.com. Or give them a call at 877-327-0365. That's 877-327-0365. Remember, in a real crisis, non-hybrid seeds are the ultimate barter item. This is Alex Jones for survivalseedbank.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have any thoughts or comments about the Tech Night Owl Live, please get in touch at news at technightowl.com. That's news at technightowl.com. Looking for past episodes? We've got hundreds at technightowl.com slash radio. That's technightowl.com slash radio. Or subscribe on iTunes. We have Neil Tickton, editor-in-chief and publisher of MacTech Magazine, and we're talking about, first, the phenomenon of data throttling, where AT&T was restricting a person's access even when they hadn't really exceeded a normal amount of bandwidth consumption. They won in small claims court. We're going to see what happens, and we were talking briefly about class action lawsuits, and we remind everybody about the one filed by many firms over the alleged antenna gate controversy. So as Neil says, you kind of short out the phone, reception quality drops. Not so bad in an area where you have a good signal, but AT&T in many parts of the U.S. is notorious for having a bad signal. We're up there in the Silicon Valley, for example, a lot of problems in the San Francisco area. So someone filed a lawsuit. But understand at the same time, Apple had a media event where Steve Jobs said, this phenomenon is normal on different smartphones, you just hold them different ways. And he pointed out Apple had videos up there Mm -hmm. showing that you hold this phone in a specific way, it kills the signal. Sometimes the movement of your hand in the position is pretty eccentric, but it can happen. And if you look at some of these phones, a lot of these smartphones have little stickers on the sensitive area saying, don't touch this place, because they like to put stickers on things. Some of the manuals, I think HTC page 13 or something for an HTC smartphone said, be careful how you hold it. At the same time, Consumer Reports blamed Apple 
but claim no other phone did it, like they never read manuals and they don't look at labels on phones. I have a problem with consumer reports, you understand. As, as do I. I think when it comes to technology reviews, they're totally clueless. They have no idea how to do it right. They can measure specs very well, but obviously they couldn't test the phone. Okay, so Apple offers to those who are dissatisfied with the iPhone their money back or without paying that restocking fee, or they can get a free case from Apple, which resolves the problem, an Apple bumper or something else. That plan right. lasted for a couple of three months. Right. So some people said, I'm not going to do this. We will file a class action lawsuit, which just some days back, this class action lawsuit was settled. And what do the people get, Neil? This is amazing. They get, as you know, a free iPhone bumper right. or $15 cash. Exactly. So basically, after all this, they are not getting anything more than Apple would have given them. Even right. after the program expired, if you call Apple support and say, this is not working right, help me, they'd send you a free bumper. Right. So they get nothing. But the lawyers who filed that class action lawsuit, they're going to clean up. Yeah, and class action suits sometimes... Um, work differently than that, and sometimes they do do a great deal of of, uh, of a benefit to the to the plaintiffs that they wouldn't do on their own. And in the case, you know, and it, it just happens to be that Apple was already taking care of their customers here and doing what was a a good resolution, you know, for it, which was the bumper to mitigate the problem that the, that was there, and it was fine. But one thing where these lawsuits work best is where the health and welfare of the population that's impacted sure. is hurt, and we right. have that movie, of course, Aaron Brockovich. Aaron Brockovich which is also based right out of here, too. <laughs> right. Aaron Brockovich is a real person. Yeah. She's a real legal assistant yeah. Yeah. who helped her boss win this major yeah. class action lawsuit about a company that was polluting the city or something and like that. And she continues to this day to be an advocate for things like that That's right. you know, overall. And so, but consumer it, products, you know, defects and stuff, wow, you get a coupon. Right. You get a free widget Especially, or something. It works better if the company is not standing behind the product and, and doing something for their customers. And in this case, Apple was. They were doing the right thing, and they were standing behind the problem. And, you know, they did the bumper, and then you move on, you know, from it. But in the case of the throttling here, this is a, a matter of AT&T changing the rules. They didn't make a mistake. They've made a conscious decision to change the rules. They didn't like the amount of usage that some people are doing. They didn't like the unlimited data plan from the beginning. And, you know, rather than incentivize people to go and do the right thing, they bang them over the head uh, with this threat of throttling. They even cut them down to a situation that is worse than what they would get uh, with the tiered plans as far as the amount of data usage. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff that sometimes you see cell companies do. uh, And AT&T has has definitely done these things in the past. You saw Verizon do something with their billing here recently, and then and then even within the same day, have to reverse a decision on on how their billing was done. By the same token, Sprint right now is saying, "Hey, we really mean unlimited." Now, is that really the case or not? Well, we'll see how how that all goes. They're saying their marketing plan on the iPhone is, "We really mean unlimited," and that and you don't have to worry about what we mean uh, on that. So we'll see how uh, how Sprint's marketing plan plays out. Maybe people will move over to that way, and maybe AT and T with with some of the noise that's been going on uh, recently this week will understand that this is not the right way to do it. And if a number of people start to file small claims actions, that might get their attention. Now, I understand here that it's not just cell phone providers that put data caps, although you may not realize it. Many ISPs also have data caps. Yeah. You know, it's going to be not three or four. AT&T is doing this right now with their home connectivity uh, for people on on both uh, UVerse and on DSL. And and 
part of what they're trying to set people up for is those data caps are fairly high at, at the moment. They're not a place where people are, are running into them. The idea behind them is that they've learned already about what they need to do with data caps on the sell side. And so they're putting them in place for all of their new services now, or at least many of their new services now, specifically so that uh, as they start to have battles with other providers that are moving lots of bandwidth over, Netflix would be a good example of, of that, or maybe some of the, uh, the Google technologies and, and the fight that the ISPs have had with Google in the past about who should pay for the bandwidth when things are getting used, whether it's YouTube or whatever the case may be. This gives them the teeth right up front in their agreement that people will always be used to having the, the cutbacks and the throttling and the cutoffs on, on stuff uh, so that if they do decide to, to fight that battle, as the bandwidth really grows, they'll have that right in their agreement for many years. And frankly, that's a more reasonable way for them to deal with it. They're doing it up front this way. Now, I should tell you that without any advance notice, I woke up one day and found that my ISP, Cox Communications, here in Arizona, they had a data cap, 400 yep. gigabytes, but they also have a data usage meter. And what they say is kind of a soft responsibility, like, well, if you exceed it a little bit, we're not going to bother you. If you exceed it extensively or repeatedly, we might throttle your account or terminate your account at our option. Now, right. part of this, as you say, it costs money to have every customer take 400 gigabytes of bandwidth. Right. So at some point, they either have to recoup those costs or they're going to have to charge you more money. And you think now that more and more services are being offered in the cloud. Think about right. Apple with iCloud. Right. And now or they're talking about whether Apple is going to add a TV subscription service. You'll be getting all your TV content from the cloud. How much data will you consume if you're watching your TV six, eight hours a day high-definition content from the cloud through your ISP who has lost your business for their cable service. Yeah. It's going and, to be very and, interesting. And you, you, know, you also have uh, things like Carbonite and Mosey and whatnot for backups, online backups into the right, cloud. Exactly. You know, you're moving around a lot of bandwidth. You know, and what's interesting is that in this country, when, if you go back to just regular plain old telephone service, uh, which is, of course, a dinosaur these days, it's kind of going away, but we're all very used to you pick up the phone, you use the phone as much as you want. You want to call you know, your friend in the next town over and, and talk to them for 24 hours a day for you know, 30 days straight. There's no charge charges for that. Now, if you're a business line, there are permitted charges. If there's long distance or toll charges, there are charges for it. And we'll have another charge if we don't mention this. We have Neil Tickton. He's publisher and editor-in-chief of MacTech Magazine. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Remoter is your ultimate screen sharing app for your Mac. With Remoter, you can share the screen of a Mac or any VNC-enabled machine, even Windows and Linux. You can do all this and more with Remoter, the easy way to share screens on your computer. Remoter is just $10.99, but wait. Go to store.remoterlabs.com. That's store.remoterlabs.com. Use the coupon code TNO to get 20% off. That's TNO to get 20% off. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. 
the site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I'd already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. IRS, the three most dreaded letters of the alphabet. If you owe back taxes, have unfiled tax returns, are receiving threatening letters, or have IRS agents coming to your home or place of business, you need an experienced IRS agent fighting on your side. Call the Tax Relief Division of the Law Offices of Craig Zimmerman at 800-652-6978. Spearheaded by a former IRS agent, we know how to negotiate a reduction in the tax you owe, stop wage garnishments, lift bank levies, and negotiate an affordable return payment plan. With 17 years as a practicing attorney and an A-plus better business rating, we'll get the IRS off your back once and for all. In fact, recently when an IRS employee had a tax problem, she called us. Stop being afraid and call right now for your free consultation at 800-652-6978. The phone call is free and there's no obligation, so call 800-652-6978. Again, that's 800-652-6978. Actual results based on individual client circumstances. Powerful forces are trying to destroy your health. It's a fact that we're surrounded by a sea of environmental toxins, from mercury and vaccines and dental fillings, to aluminum and chemtrails, to pesticides and toxic chemicals sprayed all over our food. Even nuclear radiation, which is still spewing out of Fukushima, has contaminated the water and food supply in the U.S. But there is a solution. Liquid Zeolite is an extraordinary natural formula, which safely and effectively removes all kinds of toxins from the body, including capturing heavy metals, pesticides, viruses, and radioactive particles. Use Liquid Zeolite from RestoreYourHealthNow.com for fatigue, headaches, digestion, memory loss, influenza, and joint pain. Zeolite comes with a money-back guarantee and is available at RestoreYourHealthNow.com. Learn how to get free bottles of Zeolite at RestoreYourHealthNow.com or call 800-880-9976. That's 800-880-9976. 100% safe, 100% amazing. Try Liquid Zeolite today. Folks, Iran and the Mideast nuclear mess is already ballooning our gas prices. Whether you're struggling with food costs, which are being blown up by gas costs now, or know that when the Mideast showdown explodes, whatever food supply you have is all you'll get because of huge panic demand. eFoods Direct Family Packs are the answer. Now the most affordable best food is saving you up to 50% compared to other poor quality food companies. The new Alex Jones Quick Fix Family Pack save you so much money, the savings from eating this food will actually help you pay your other bills. No matter what effect the Mideast crisis or the crashing economy have, you'll have food as delicious tonight as 25 years from now. Order now for 50% savings and free shipping on these affordable family packs. Call 800-409-5633 or eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex. Call 800-409-5633 or eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex. You're listening to the Tech Night Owl live with Gene Steinberg. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Neil Tipton of Mac Tech Magazine. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Owl Live, and we have been exploring data throttling, the use of restrictions, 
And, you know, even in so-called unlimited plans, when it talks to telephones, like, for example, I have a so-called, I guess, unlimited plan with an Internet phone company called Phone Power. But if I look at the fine print, it's really 5,000 minutes. Right. Now, I don't know how I will ever use 5,000 minutes on the phone over a month, right. but they do have limits. And you can see where at some point in time, as consumers demand more and more bandwidth, the Internet providers will be forced to either expand their charges, charge a lot more money to use that bandwidth, or really expand their data centers or find more efficient ways to move that stuff. What I was going towards a second ago with the plain old telephone service is that in other countries, people pay for usage often. For every minute, even a call across the street, they pay for an amount of usage on telephones and on internet and on all kinds of stuff. So we're a little unusual in this country in the way that we you know, are used to the, the telephone and have, then how we translated that to the internet. And then initially we transfer that to kind of cell phone data uh, usage with some of these unlimited plans and, and that. And we're finding, and the cell phone companies are finding that's not really what they want to do and that they really need to, to kind of cut back in order to serve the needs that they have. They're profit-making businesses, and not here right. as a public service. At the end of the day, the small claims action is something that will take people some effort to do if they feel that they need to do it. The primary motivation to doing it is going to be, yeah, maybe to some extent, some damages that they can get from AT&T on changing up the plans and throttling and, and doing these things. But as, as one person put it, it's more about, call it, sticking it to the man, if you will, sticking it to AT&T for changing the rules. And if you're the kind of person that wants to take up a fight like that, you know, some of the step-by-step things that we've talked about in the Mac Tech article, there are things that you should consider. You know, it's not legal advice. It's not, you know, it necessarily going to guarantee a win and whatnot. But there are things that you should think about if you're going to file a small claims action. At the end of the day, however, it's not going to be a huge amount of money. It's not like you're going to be able to go get $10,000 out of AT&T for damages that are done because of the limits on small claims. And the other thing is here, there's no guarantee you win, as you say, because local courts may be apt not to consider it the same way. On the other hand, each win... Puts in place a precedent. Exactly. Well, this case here, they said yes. Here they said yes. Here they said yes. Take a look at these cases. You should say yes. It's the same circumstances, the same laws. And I encourage anybody to stand up for what they believe in on there. Do your research. Check your facts. Be prepared. And if you feel that it's the right thing to do, go for it. And here's the latest neighbors. AT&T now says that they won't throttle anyone with an unlimited plan until they use more than three gigabytes. Obviously a reaction to the case, in my opinion. Let's go for a quick discussion about some changes Apple is doing. Now, of course, we have the Mac App Store. Everyone is familiar with it, from Snow Leopard over to Lion and now Mountain Lion. And Apple has something new here, and I guess we want to try to explain what this is about. They've got a feature in Mountain Lion, which is supposed to help protect you against malware, called Gatekeeper. And I guess the larger question I'm going to ask, Neil, since you have a publication that caters in part to developers, and that is, does this mean that Apple is, in its own way, coercing developers to get all their stuff into the Mac App Store? You know, so the Mac App Store is kind of interesting. There's there's one part of it that is very easy to use for people. They can buy software online. They can install it. They can do the updates. There's a lot of, of positive things there. You know, by the same token, um, it's not going to work in the same way that the iPhone or the iPad or the iOS, you know, App Store, the iTunes App Store has, has worked um, in that there's going to be many, many pieces of software out there that simply cannot be made available on the Mac App Store because of the rules for going on the Mac App Store. 
whether it's sandboxing or um, how to, to write at the low-level systems or the types of uh, products that are out there, or frankly, just people that um, you know, want to be able to do uh, some of the, the additional add-ons down the road or that you know, want to go for a different business model. The business model for apps going through the App Store, even like the iOS one, is not always the best thing for a developer. It often can be fairly difficult. You know, for example, as you well know, you're in the media. You have people wanting to, uh, to review your products all the time, and yet there is no good way for a developer to send you a review unit for you to go, or a review piece of software, a serial number, if you will, for you to go check out a piece of software so you can talk about it. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times we just get iTunes gift cards in the mail from somebody wanting to send us a piece of software because it's the only way they can give us a piece of software for the iPhone or, or uh, for, for the Mac App Store. So it can be really tough on developers because the business model is tough because it takes away a lot of their options on things. And there, but there are some good pieces for users. So for a long time to come, I expect there to be you know, kind of the in the Mac App Store and not in the Mac App Store and both being really good advantages for people to do. Now, one example of the kind of software that doesn't get in the Mac App Store today is the kind of software that captures audio from, say, Skype mm-hmm. or iChat or from Safari. Or virtualization products. Parallels in VMware uh, can't be done because of, of you know, they're fairly low-level pieces of software in the way that they work, and they can't be done. Or people that have software that have add-on packages, you know, like maybe templates or things along those lines, that can't be done. Or people that uh, are unable to sandbox because of the nature of the utility they're doing, those can't be done. There's a now, lot of pieces of software that can't be done out there. Now, we explain, of course, what sandboxing is about, because this is where the real issue is. Now, Gatekeeper is simply a warning on your Mac under Mountain Lion where you have the option of running anything, running apps that either are coded with the Apple developer ID certificate that developers are now going to get or are in the Mac App Store. You have, you have these options. Now, the point being, though, is Apple for the Mac App Store wants to put in place sandboxing, which is the real walled garden. It means that one application is walled off from another, and that process prevents a corrupted, infected application from infecting the system. So we understand there's a good thing. So how do applications work with one another when they have to? Apple has something called entitlements, which is not Social Security or Medicare. It's, I guess, permission to access certain ways of communicating with other apps or the system. Without getting technical uh, on here, and I, it's probably not the right thing to do for, the, for uh, this listening audience, basically, you know, you're right. It, it really is encapsulation, if you will. It's, it's creating, as you said, the wall garden uh, for people to do. And in some cases, that is simple to do or relatively simple to do. And in some places, it's simply impossible. And then there's all the cases that are in between. And there's been enough pushback and enough difficulty from the developers that we've recently seen Apple you know, change the date that, that uh, people have to be sandboxed on in order to be uh, on the Mac App Store and, and push that out in order to give developers more time. It's proving to be a more difficult thing for developers and a burden on developers that Apple, I would presume, has, has underestimated. And that's why they've changed the date and pushed it out here, uh, I think, until towards the summer. And so, you know, basically, there is work to do. And you will see products go away from being on the Mac App Store, and you'll see other people you know, continue forward and, and use that as an advantage. There are some benefits to it because it does provide that some of that security. But again, there are certain types of utilities and whatnot that just due to the nature of what they do, they can't be sandboxed. They just can't 
they can't do their job um, at that point. And obviously, limiting them in that way wouldn't be good for the user. It would be bad. So Now, it, also, Apple, for the advance of the platform, has to allow customers to get a very wide variety of apps and certainly not yeah. to give them up. But you almost have to wonder here whether Apple is going to have to seriously compromise on the entitlements, expand them in such a way that most apps that maybe are now prohibited will have some way of hooking into the system or talking to one another in a specific Apple-prescribed way. And maybe that's one of the reasons it's being postponed to give Apple more options to try to work this out. Yeah, and maybe that'll happen. But I think more than likely what'll happen is is that they're going to allow people to be able to install software that is not on the Mac App Store. Uh, Because there's going to be certain compromises there that if they make, they lose the primary benefit of what they're trying to accomplish by creating these walled gardens. And remember, Apple is a company. The one number one thing that that drives what Apple you know does on decisions is really control. They want to control that experience, and they want it so that they can have it be a good experience. They're not doing it to be mean or doing it to be evil. They're just doing it to deliver the best experience they can. That's why they build hardware and software, not just software. And that's why they make huge profits and now have more money than Napoleon. (laughs) (laughs) We have Neil Tickton. He is the publisher and editor-in-chief of Mac Tech Magazine, and they got some really special stuff coming up we'll ask about in the next segment on the Tech Night Out Live. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack Attack of the Rockwoods. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Take charge of your health. Get all natural innovative health products from the new affinityhealthproducts.com. From weight loss to cold and flu remedies to better joint function, discover natural products you can trust online at affinityhealthproducts.com. Like Lose and Snooze, fact is 90% of all diets fail. Why not try a completely new way of dieting? With Lose and Snooze, you can achieve weight loss while you sleep. Guaranteed. Reduce caloric intake, get a deep restorative sleep, build lean muscle mass, and keep your metabolic rate up to burn fat throughout the night and day with all-natural lose and snooze from AffinityHealthProducts.com. Include the one-day diet for a complete weight loss package. Order lose and snooze and the one-day diet and other all-natural products for men and women online at AffinityHealthProducts.com. Spelled A-F-F-I-N-I-T-Y HealthProducts.com. Or call 877-888-7126. That's 877-888-7126.
Do you know which 37 crucial food items are going to fly off the shelves when the next disaster hits? If you don't, you and your family may be without food and waiting in long food lines after a big disaster strikes. You would be surprised how many people don't have these food items right now. 123survivalplan.com has set up a For Patriots Only video with inside information on the 37 food items that will sell out first when the next disaster strikes. The video on 123survivalplan.com has crucial information you and your family need to prepare for any disaster, natural or man-made. And you won't have to be afraid of going hungry or being sent to a FEMA refugee camp. See the video that over 1 million other smart patriots have already seen in the last four months. Prepared now. Go to 123survivalplan.com and learn which 37 food items you should hoard. Easy to remember. 123survivalplan.com. Again, that's 123survivalplan.com. These are strange days indeed, from economic turmoil to weather-related events, and yes, even power outages. Hi everybody, Jason Lewis here. Let me tell you why I use WiseFoodStorage.com. WiseFoodStorage.com provides the most affordable and complete ready-made meals for emergency preparedness and outdoor use. Their entrees like pasta Alfredo, savory stroganoff, and apple cinnamon cereal carry a 25-year shelf life and are prepared in minutes simply by adding water. They even provide great-tasting a la carte items like freeze-dried fruits, vegetables, and desserts to ensure that you have more nutrition and energy when you need it most. Visit wisefoodstorage.com today to request a free entree sample and see for yourself why they are the best in the business. For a limited time, enter the promo code LEWIS to get no-cost shipping on any order. That's wisefoodstorage.com or call 1-855-FOODWISE and be sure to mention the promo code LEWIS for a free sample and free shipping on any order. Be wise and be ready with wisefoodstorage.com. You're listening to the Tech Night Owl Live with Gene Steinberg. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Neil Tickton from MacTech Magazine. That's MacTech.com if you want to check it out, by the way. And it's a publication that caters to, I would say, the more power users amongst us. As yeah. far as Mac users to developers, people like that. But we're talking about the stuff that everybody has to understand. So your theory here is that Apple is just going to have to accept the situation that they can't allow for every possible app and still have sandboxing. So they will continue to allow this coexistence where you have the developer ID for the app that has the certificate of purity, as they say. It's <laughs> not malware infected. And then you have the Mac App Store for the stuff that has more restrictions on it. Now, of course, you're seeing apps from Adobe. You're seeing apps from Microsoft, very few, but you'll notice they're very limited in how much they reach out. They don't have these sprawling installers that Microsoft and Adobe and Quark put in their stuff. Right. Maybe, of course, that will also help if they want to get in the Mac App Store. These developers will clean up their acts and not create programs that – you can't just install and uninstall by throwing out a single file. Yeah, although by the same token, sometimes there are reasons behind some of the things that developers do. Sometimes they're guilty and they really do need to clean up their acts, but there's a lot of times that there's a reason that they're doing something. And uh, yes, it would be great if they made it more robust, but even if they did it in the best way for the user, that still may not meet the requirements of what Apple would have for the Mac App Store. Now, this kind of dovetails with both our discussions so far today. That is the data, the data throttling, and 
Apple's features, iCloud, Gatekeeper. All of this stuff depends on some level of online access. The Mac App Store, you want to get the next version or the current version of the Mac operating system, you got to be online. Now, they're going to still sell, at least for Lion, this little USB stick so you don't have to be online. But not but for, for Mountain Lion, Lion no, because yeah. nobody's buying it. So if you want to get Mountain Lion, if you're not online or you have a slow Internet connection like a lot of people in the U.S. do, what do you do? Go to an Apple store, go to a Wi-Fi hotspot, go to your neighborhood Starbucks, whatever, and download it. But here's the problem now. Suddenly... We have the Mac App Store. You want to get apps, you have to be online. And you have to have a fast connection to be able to get those apps in a prompt fashion. Gatekeeper is basically, what is it, keeping a database of the possibly malware-infected apps so they won't launch? How does Gatekeeper work? It has to have an online connection, right? Yeah, I believe it does. And, you know, this is one of the assumptions that Apple has always made, which is that everybody has a connection everywhere. And, um, you know, whether you're on AT&T with a cell phone that maybe doesn't, or Sprint for that matter, uh, Verizon being a little bit better, but there's all kinds of places that there is no connection in, in place. And there's all kinds of places that there isn't a good connection in, in place. And so um, I think that, you know, Apple is trying to push the envelope with kind of figuring that connectivity is ubiquitous, uh, that it's everywhere in, in good quality. And that's, you know, somewhat good in that they're pushing the envelope in that way and driving that demand. But by the same token, it also causes a great deal of frustration for those people that don't have a great connection. I'm already frustrated enough when I, when I uh, um, you know, drive towards my house that I can't carry a cell phone call uh, the whole way with AT&T and you know, it's kind of an, an issue. Verizon doesn't. This, there's no signal at all. So, you know, I don't want to just malign AT and T. They're the better of the of the bunch. But uh, at least in our neighborhood. But you know, basically, it's really, really tough for people if they don't have that great connection. So Apple is kind of hoping we will have a connected future, but we don't have that connected future here in the U.S. Obviously, yeah. a lot of countries do. They have better connectivity yeah. than we do, but a lot of because countries don't. And sometimes the Internet access is not, yeah, as I mean, they it's, say, it's, it's, is not cheap enough to make sense to grab all this stuff. So, yeah. And then, then, of course, we have iCloud. There's the other thing. iCloud yeah. involves instantaneous sharing of your documents under Mountain Lion. So if you have a Mountain Lion savvy app, you open the documentation, the document yeah, I, in one I machine, wanna, and it instantly yeah. updates on the next machine when you make a change. Where's your online access? What happens exactly. then? Exactly. I almost wanted to, to set up a lab for Apple, you know, uh, in our neighborhood or in our town where there is really spotty connectivity and see if, if uh, one of the engineers can survive the day, you know, in, in doing that sometimes and without getting completely frustrated in what they're doing. But, you know, that's another topic for another day. <laughs> Send a letter to Tim Cook and say, Tim, come to my neighborhood. There you go. I want Happy you to, to spend it. the day there. Yeah. I want you to bring your MacBook Air your iPhone, your <laughs> iPad, you know, pre-release products, I don't care. You spend that day there. You try to use these products with the constant requirement of online access and tell me if you don't change your tune real fast. Exactly. So, Tim, if you're listening, you're invited. <laughs> well, I know Apple listens to us sometimes, but I don't know that he does. Yeah, exactly. But that's a very quick question here before we ask you about all the special events at MacTech. Yeah. Does Tim seem to be listening more to the public and their reaction than Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs was an either-or kind of person. 
whereas Tim Cook is more nuanced. Well, I think that that's always been part of the case, and I think that that's been part of Apple's culture for a long time, that Tim was there in assisting Steve Jobs with, with his vision. And this, I don't think we're seeing anything new from Tim. We're just not seeing Steve there at the same point in time. And there's many stories about certain execs at Apple that wouldn't have a meeting with other execs at Apple unless Tim was in the room, simply because Tim made people work better together and made them listen to each other better. And presumably, that was the that's the reasoning behind it. And I think we're just seeing a little bit more of, the, of him in a more public face because of you know, the, the new Apple and, and with him at the helm. And they said, oh, this is a numbers guy. He's not a product person. In every interview I read with him, you know, pass anything related to earnings. It's all product, product, product. And he hypes pretty well. You know, he's getting better at it. He seems to have this subtle sense of humor yeah. that if displayed properly, he could become a really good public person. We have to see how he's going to work at the media event next week. I assume before we ask you about the events very quickly, we all expect an iPad 3. Do you sure. think it's going to have the retina display, the double resolution display and everything? I think it will. Um, I'm a little worried about what that's going to impact on developers to do out there because a lot of people haven't built for it. So it'll be interesting to see how Apple make, makes that as transparent as possible. Uh, I think we'll see faster and better battery life and maybe a little lighter and whatnot. I think the camera will get better. I think we're going to see, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see this be a 2S, if you will, instead of a 3. Maybe it will be the 3. We'll see. The iPad 2 is a pretty darn good product as it is right now. And so it'll be interesting to see how Apple decides to push the envelope for it. I don't think we're going to see revolutionary stuff. I think we're going to see more evolutionary stuff. And maybe a new Apple TV because they seem to be awfully hard to get now. I don't know. I don't. I think that's something separate. But, you know, you never know with Apple. You'll know when you know. It's always interesting to, 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 you know, to see what happens. And we'll see that uh, next week. This is going to be on March 7th, by the way. And what this means is that some people, of course, will be hearing this show on March 8th. So whatever we predict may have come to pass or not come to pass. And as we progress with our next guest, we'll be speculating a bit more about the iPad 3 2S, whether it's going to have the A5X or A6 processor, all that stuff. And you know what? We reserve the right to be proven wrong. Yeah. Right. And right. we don't care. You know, let's just have oh. some fun. Now, exactly. Mac Tech, you guys sponsor all these events around the year. Take a couple of minutes to explain what's going yeah. on and where we can get a hold of you. Well, so Mac Tech is a 28-year-old print publication for, for techs or geeks on the Mac. Um, basically, we are the second oldest Mac publication. We uh, have readers in, in the print magazine in over 50 countries and uh, a 100,000-page website that's, that's read by 175 countries on, on a regular basis. We are definitely the technical of the you know, uh, magazine that's out there. We're not for users. Even power users are, are a little bit light for us unless you're wanting to move more on up. And for years, even though we've had the print magazine, and the, and the website. We've done all kinds of behind-the-scenes things uh, from uh, from an event point of view. We ran Apple's exhibit fair at WWC for about 10 years. We we made the uh, pavilions, uh, special interest pavilions at, at Macworld Expo uh, a big success uh, and ran those for about a decade as well. So basically, we have all this event stuff that we've been doing for the community, but we had not done a Mac Tech titled event until 2010 when we launched Mac Tech Conference. And that went so well that people said, well, what about us? We're, we're a small to medium sized business consultants. What do you have for us? Because MacTech Conference is for IT pros, enterprise, and developers. So we went ahead and we launched 
MacTech Bootcamp, which is specifically for small to medium-sized business consultants and uh, consultants for small office, home use, office, and, and consumers. And uh, MacTech Bootcamp went really well, so we took that on the road to four more cities, and that went really well. So we started to think about our 2012 calendar, and at the same time, add a third series of events called MacTech In-Depth, which is our deep dive on a single topic. And at the end of the day, in 2010, we had one top one uh, event, MacTech Conference. In 2011, we had seven. And in 2012, we have 15 events all around the country. So if you're interested in, in getting uh, introduced into more technology, to be a consultant, to make a living you know, from what you know technically about anything on the Apple platforms, these events are, are really for you. And they're a great opportunity to not only learn from the best, but also be able to network with your peers and meet all kinds of new people and expand your network and find out how to, it's, you know, we call it the personal upgrade, right? You spend all this money on your computer and your software and whatnot. Here's a way to upgrade your knowledge. And that's what Mac Tech events are about. You go to MacTech.com, MacTech.com, learn about the events, yep. and maybe when it comes to your city, you'll wonder why Neil Tickton is never going to go home again. He has no time. Yeah. Neil, Neil Tickton, thanks for joining us on the Tech Night Out Live. Thanks, Gene. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, Ted Anderson announcing a great way to listen to radio on the telephone. By calling 760-569-7700, you'll be hearing GCNlive.com programs in seconds. Come to GCNlive.com, find your favorite host's dedicated phone number, and hear them 24-7. You heard me right, every show has a dedicated phone number. Stop by GCNlive.com and bookmark their number today. And again, that's 760-569-7700. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237. Welcome back to the Tech Night Out Live, where you never know what's going to happen next. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. This is an episode, neighbors, I've been looking forward to. We have Greg Bell, and he's the guy who hosts the Radio Classics shows over at Sirius XM Satellite Radio. And to understand what that's about, if you haven't heard it, We're going to go back in time in my time machine with my flux capacitor or something, and we're going to go back to a time when we didn't have conservative talk show hosts on radio, we didn't have the disc jockeys, we had what is called the golden age of radio. Greg, welcome to the Tech Night Out Live. Tell us about the golden age and how you got interested. So it's the golden age of radio as opposed to the silver DeLorean there with your flux capacitor, huh? That's right. We don't want to tell that story. That's a long one. That's all right. It's precious gems either way. Yes, indeed. The golden age of radio is one of those terms that people will attribute different time periods to. But really, it runs from the late 1920s into the early 1960s. Now, the easiest way to explain it to folks who aren't familiar with it is before TV, the home entertainment was radio. 
everyone sat around the radios and listened to the shows. And obviously the uh, pictures were in their head, their imagination filled in what people looked like. Most shows that were early television successes, for instance, originated on radio because it was very simple. When they had this new medium called television, you had to decide, what are we going to put here? How are we going to fill the time? And the easiest thing to do was to look back at radio, which was already popular, and say, hmm, you know, I wonder if this uh, Father Knows Best stuff would work on television or The Life of Riley or Our Miss Brooks or even dramatic stuff. Everything from The Lone Ranger to Gunsmoke to Dragnet all originated as radio shows first. So uh, that's sort of, in a nutshell, a little bit of how uh, the golden age of radio dominated and then faded over time, uh, beginning, as I said, in the, I, you might know this even better than I, Gene, but I believe it was uh, 1919 is what's credited as the first uh, real radio station. And back at that point... And I wasn't listening to it then. Some people <laughs> think I'm older than the hills. You came in, you know, a couple of years after yeah, that. Yeah, an hour or two. <laughs> uh, well, obviously, they had the same problem when they first started using radio for commercial use for public enjoyment as opposed to, uh, you know, for military uses or, or for information, um, governmental information stuff. They had to figure out what to do with it. So it started out the most, the early stuff was music. You would have an orchestra that would perform live right into the microphones and, and folks could tune in. And so instead of having to go out and find their album to put on their phonograph, they could uh, listen to their favorite orchestras and their favorite music. And then somebody thought, what a great idea. Maybe we could put plays on there. And they started putting uh, uh, small little scripted things. And again, sort of drawing from what they already knew. So they looked at the stage play and they said, what if we just did the audio portion of a stage play? Uh, And from that evolved full-blown radio comedies and radio dramas. Now, that's the point I wanted to ask you about. Mm -hmm. I assume then we didn't have even regular audio tape. They didn't even have wire then. They were recording these things if they did transcribe them on regular records but if they're doing a dramatic show it had to be done live in a single take it was a stage play exactly what you did was you set up in a studio or you set up in front of an audience the comedy shows the rule of thumb is when you listen to a classic radio show if you hear laughter it's a live audience this isn't like a laugh track folks right laugh tracks certainly you know laugh tracks were created for television they, that's where they, they found their it, it doesn't mean there wasn't a little sweetening done in the later years of comedy radio comedy but most radio comedies you heard especially the big ones like Jack Benny and, and Fred Allen and Bob Hope those were in front of live audiences and so the laughter was genuine uh, now with a live dramatic show it's one thing if you screw up it's obvious on a comedy show you know Jack Benny or Jimmy Durante they said something and they make a mistake these are professional performers. They could just work around it. What did you do if you made a mistake on The Shadow or The Lone Ranger? Well, you did the same thing. You just worked through it. Uh, some folks would ad-lib, fill a little bit of time if there was a comfort level there. Somebody famous for that would be Orson Welles, as you mentioned The Shadow. When Orson Welles was a young 20-something punk, really, uh, but a super talent. He, uh, he didn't even rehearse. He just grabbed the script cold and, and read it. So he was working 30 minutes a week for an, an incredible sum. It was $180 a week in 1938, 37 money. And he would, he would roll in right before the show. They would hand him the script and he said he'd like to know what the shadow, he didn't want to know what the shadow was going to end up discovering. He wanted to discover it at the same time. And, you know, so the, the more savvy people could, could, could ad-lib through that. 
you'll hear a lot of flubs on the radio shows like I play at, in the dramatic stuff. And that's sort of what makes it stand out. Not that, not that you want to hear people make mistakes all the time, but it just sort of highlights the, the live quality of it. Makes them feel spontaneous, makes them feel alive. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I read somewhere that Orson Welles, and he is the most famous actor to play the shadow. There were several. There were also shadow movies. There was the one with Alec Baldwin. <laughs> which was so far over the top, I feel sad about it because I love the character. He which is almost like the first Batman, almost. I was going to say Baldwin won't even talk about it. That's, uh, that's I thought how- he was good in it, but I thought the film was so over the top. Mm-hmm. And they were actually went back to the source material for some of that stuff, the old Street and Smith novels from Walter B. Gibson. But they just made it ridiculous and absurd. And the sets were beautiful, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, going back to the original, I heard that Orson Welles always had problems with the laugh, you know, the <laughs> that kind of thing. Precisely. He, uh, he just couldn't perfect it. He couldn't quite get the sound of it right. Uh, so they used the little signature pieces. Who knows? You know, the shadow knows. Those opening and closing pieces, because there were recordings at the time. Uh, one thing that a lot of people don't think about, and you brought it up a little earlier, Gene, and that was how were they saving these shows? In many cases, they were 100% live, and they didn't care because no one thought to play a rerun. No one thought it was going to air again. So a show played just like watching a stage play. They, they were on, and it was gone, and all that stuff is lost in time. The nice thing in my world, of course, or what I do wouldn't exist, is enough people look to record for any number of reasons. Quite often, it was a local station that couldn't play it at exactly the live broadcast time. So they would find a way to record it. The other use of recordings at the time were, although most sound effects, and we can talk about this more later if you want, most sound effects were done by live artists creating them. There was a call for some pre-recorded stuff, things that were hard to imitate on a live stage. Also, a lot of music. It was much cheaper to find public domain music on an album and play it than it was to have a live orchestra or even a single organist playing. So it was like a regular radio station where you have a couple of turntables and you Mm -hmm. have disc jockeys or directors who would play the cued recording. Exactly. So what happened in the case of Orson Welles in The Shadow was, although he's the one who really, they fleshed out the character, they made it a participant in all the episodes. They created this Lamont Cranston who could turn into The Shadow, who basically could cloud men's minds and be the shadow with the use of a simple microphone filter. At Just that like time, this, you hear that, folks? That's it. <laughs> yeah. I am now the shadow. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? You see what I mean? All you had to do was have a filter. That's how they imitated telephone sounds in those days. They used a filter on the mic. Exactly. So what, so what happened in his world was right before him, From 1930 until 1937, when he took over, the shadow was basically just a narrator. He was just a host of the Street and Smith crime detective stuff that they played on radio. So Frank Reddick was the actor who played the shadow right before Orson. And Reddick could do the laugh. And so what they did is they had recorded Frank Reddick at some point in time doing the laugh and doing the little signature pieces, the little open dialogue and the closing dialogue, uh, which you were just doing there, Gene. and what Very they did, badly, as a matter of fact. But. <laughs> well, what they would do is then is they would play Frank Reddick's little piece, and then Orson Welles would play the character, and then they would use that right off a little record, you know, a record album, basically just transcription discs look like a big record album. They would play that, and then Orson, they'd do the live show, and then they would play it as the wrap-up. Uh, when Welles left the show in the fall of 38, 
because he did this little thing called the Mercury Theater on the Air, which did that War of the Worlds broadcast we all uh, we all know so well. Ah, uh, yes, I remember. Because because he made that move, they hired Bill Johnstone, who had done uh, had been on the show and other characters periodically. And Johnstone, the first thing he did was is he showed that he could do the laugh. And so they so they said you're hired. Bill Johnstone being, I guess, the third shadow. More to come with Greg Bell from XM Satellite Radio's Radio Classics. More on the Tech Night Out Live. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs convert from so many formats i can't even list them download now to see if graphic converter is good for you like one and a half million other users guess what you could save money when you buy graphic converter use the coupon code night owl use the coupon code night owl to get a special price for graphic converter go to lemkesoft.com that's l-e-m-k-e soft.com lemkesoft.com l-e-m-k-e soft.com On the average, Americans work between 45 to 50 years hoping to build up enough wealth to retire and live out their golden years. Unfortunately, with taxation, the rising cost of food, energy, housing, and medical, many retirees are forced to live below the poverty line. Is this a flaw free enterprise, or is our monetary unit we call the Federal Reserve Note forcing us into perpetual debt, ensuring inflation and higher taxes? These questions and more can be answered by reading G. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Congressman Ron Paul states it's what every American needs to know about central bank power. A gripping adventure into the secret world of international banking cartel. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. I will give a silver dollar from the early 1900s to anyone who purchases this book. Call 1-800-686-2237 and order a copy today. It's critical that the public be made aware of the system. Call and order your copy today at 1-800-686-2237. That's 1-800-686-2237. How would you like to save over $100 on your gardening seeds this year? You can at GetSeeds.net. GetSeeds offers 100% open-pollinated, heirloom, non-hybrid, GMO-free premium vegetable seeds. On sale now for only $59 for 100 packets. Your 100 packets will include a variety of vegetable seeds, common herb seeds, and garden variety fruits. You can even collect your seeds from the plants you grow so you don't have to purchase more seeds year to year. Go to GetSeeds.net for a chance to buy your seeds at 300 plus percent below online retailers prices. Save money and get non-hybrid heirloom GMO free premium growing seeds at GetSeeds.net. GetSeeds.net or call us at 877-341-GROW. That's 877-341-4769. GetSeeds.net. Extend your life with ExtendoVite. Are you or someone you know suffering from high blood pressure, cholesterol, or chest pains? Are you looking for a more natural way to overcome these health challenges? 
Extendivite is made from herbs known to help with these symptoms. Made from garlic, cayenne, hawthorn, and four other herbs, Extendivite goes to work detoxifying heavy metals and killing fungus and virus to enhance your overall health. For only $69.95 plus shipping and handling for a two-month supply of either capsules or liquid, you too can begin on your path to better health. For more information, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit our website at heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extendovite. We'd like to hear from you. If you have any thoughts or comments about the Tech Night Owl Live, please get in touch at news at technightowl.com. That's news at technightowl.com. Looking for past episodes? We've got hundreds at technightowl.com slash radio. That's technightowl.com slash radio. Or subscribe on iTunes. On the Tech Night Owl Live with Gene Steinberg, we are proud to have Greg Bell telling us about the golden age of radio, especially the shadow, because I was such a fan of the character. And a lot of listeners will be tuning me out now saying, the shadow, what is that? And okay, Bill Johnstone takes over. He can do the laugh. Right. Now, also, he wasn't the last one. There was one or two more, right? Exactly. There were a number of shadows uh, over the years. The show ran from 1930 to 1954. The uh, Johnstone did it for five years. And in 1943, because he had replaced Orson Welles, as we mentioned before, in 1943, he wanted to move to Hollywood. He also worked on the Cavalcade of America, another popular radio show. And they relocated from New York City to Hollywood. And so Bill Johnstone went with them. Well, the New York-based shadow needed a new actor. So they auditioned a bunch of fellas, and they ended up picking a guy named Brett Morrison. And Brett Morrison would play the shadow, except for one year when he took off to pursue a singing career. He played the shadow for the rest of its run, all the way through 54. And then the one year he did take off, one of the actors who filled in for him was John Archer. And the reason I mention that is John Archer's uh, daughter is Academy Award nominee Ann Archer from, uh, uh, you know, the which was it, was it Patriot Games? One of the, you know, the Jack Ryan movies. Sure, uh, sure, so I she remember. Got the Oscar nomination for it. But Ann Archer's done a, a ton of films over the years. Uh, and her father was the shadow briefly. Uh, <laughs> yes, very briefly. Something to talk about over dinner, I expect. <laughs> now, I always wonder from the standpoint of the audience. Mm-hmm. Again, you change the character. It's Orson Welles. It's Bill Johnstone. You have all these people playing the shadow. Didn't the stations get a call saying, that's not the shadow. What are you doing to me? Well, there was certainly uh, some of that. What happened is that because it was audio only, because it was just the voice, when they could, they would try to find a voice that was similar. So they weren't, it wasn't too much of an assault. The thing that was really common then that you don't see in today, especially for today's like television, is the same actor would play multiple roles. You would have cast, you would have a basically a stable of actors that would keep coming back around and doing various roles every week. So it was not unusual to the audience to have the same voice come around and play supporting characters over and over again. So it was just a little bit more of a, of a disruption that it was the lead character that would change voice. Uh, but it was, again, it was, it was similar enough. The one story that, that, I, that I loved about that, dealing with that, was, was The Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger started way back in, in 1933 out of Detroit, WXYZ Studios. Uh, the mutual broadcasting system, which you've heard, it's now a defunct network, but it was created in order to distribute the Lone Ranger. 
around the Midwest. Parenthetically, I was trained mm-hmm. as a radio announcer by a former mutual radio network newscaster. And I was actually working for the final show. Uh, I was working for Westwood One at the time. Uh, this has got to be in the uh, 90s. And uh, Jim Bohannon does a national show. It's a national show for years. Sure. He was the final guy to actually sign off with the term the mutual broadcasting system because it had been folded into different companies and, and kept fading and fading and fading. And I happened to be to working uh, as a producer for that show on the night that it closed. So it's so great to come full circle to be working with uh, shows like The Lone Ranger uh, and The Green Hornet and others that were mutual series and sort of be there as it, as it went off. Anyway, what happened was is they cast uh, a guy named Earl Grazer played The Lone Ranger for the early years. And it didn't look anything like what you'd expect. He was a slight little fella, short and thin, but he had a great voice. Sadly, though, in 1941, he was driving home from the station and he apparently fell asleep at the wheel and he was killed in a car crash. Well, this was when The Lone Ranger was not only live, it was three days a week. So they had to do a show. They had a show like the next night. So they had to figure out what happens. How are we going to make this work? So what they did is they scrambled and they quickly rewrote some stories. And suddenly Tonto had more lines than ever before because they created a storyline where the Lone Ranger was shot and wounded in the throat. So he couldn't speak. So Tonto carried the action for a few days, for a few episodes. And the Lone Ranger would just sort of grunt and, 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 and Tonto would interpret what he was trying to say until he regained his voice. Uh, after enough time had gone by, they felt there was enough time for the listeners. Suddenly the Lone Ranger's voice returned. But it had been altered. And instead of Earl Grazer, it was Brace Beamer. And Brace Beamer would end up playing the Lone Ranger for the rest of its run into the 50s. And that's how they explained the change of voices for the, uh, for the Lone Ranger character. So basically because he was injured, his voice timber changed. Now, that's another thing, too. When radio shows went to TV, sometimes you have the original stars. You know, Dragnet, it's always Jack Webb. Nobody in the world. Other than Dan Aykroyd in that pathetic movie version of Dragnet, nobody in the world could do that voice that way other than Jack Webb. But, you know, we had Gunsmoke on radio. You had William Conrad. And if we remember Jake and the Fat Man on TV, this is a stout kind of guy. He's not the tall, muscular Matt Dillon. They had to pick somebody else for TV. Yeah, a frequent cast member on both the radio, mainly on the radio version, but he also did some TV, was Vic Perrin. And Vic Perrin's a guy that everyone would know his face if you saw him. He did so much television in the uh, 50s and 60s and uh, even into the early 70s. He was also the voice of The Outer Limits, that, that TV show. But Vic There Perrin, is nothing wrong with your television set. <laughs> precisely. Vic Perrin's son had visited with me. Um, he's a listener, and he visited with me a few times. Uh, Vic Perrin Jr., and he was telling me a great story that his father had related to him about William Conrad wanted to be Matt Dillon. He was Matt Dillon on radio. He had an incredible baritone voice, and everybody knew that, knew that voice as the voice of Marshall Dillon. So when it was time to make the TV series, after a gentleman by the name of John Wayne said he didn't want to play Matt Dillon on television, they were looking for somebody to play the role. Well, Bill Conrad said, look, I'm going to audition. I am, you know, I'm the guy. And uh, he went into the audition, and this is, again, this is Vic Perrin's story. They're sitting, they get, sit down in a chair, and he's starting to, to, to talk to the, to the people. He knew all the, all the producers and directors because they were the same guys from the radio side. And when he went to get up, it was a chair with arms on the side. And as he stood up, the chair came with him because he was stuck in it. And at that moment, Vic Perrin said he knew that William Conrad was not going to play Marshall Dillon on, on television. On the first episode of Gunsmoke, John Wayne tells us, 
why Jim Arness, whom we all remember as the thing from another world, why he is the guy, the next great star. He was going to play Marshall McDillon, and you know what? He was right. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, Dragnet as well. The, another big difference between the main reason that Gunsmoke did not have the same cast as the radio version was they were looking for a certain look. So a six foot seven inch strapping James Arness looked much better as the big marshal of Dodge City. He had that, a good speaking voice. Let's face it. He did. No, he was a great. He was a great actor, and he defined that character as a TV character. You know, William Conrad was five foot something, and he was he was short and dumb and balding and and some of the other cast members you know uh, georgia ellis who was kitty just wasn't quite pretty enough in their mind to play miss kitty so amanda blake was cast howard mcnair who went on to be floyd the barber on the andy griffith show he was doc which i thought he would have looked fine but obviously they thought milburn stone was cast and then also chester people who know festus there was there wasn't a deputy before festus it was chester in that case it was very simple parley bear was also kind of roundish and and balding and looked a little like bill conrad and they wanted a young guy a young, handsome guy to play the role. So they cast Dennis Weaver to uh, to play Chester on um, on television. But in the case of Dragnet, it wasn't just that Jack Webb was so defined. It's that Jack Webb owned the series. Well, that also helps, doesn't it? We have Greg Bell, and he's the host of Radio Classics on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Remoter is your ultimate screen sharing app for your Mac. With Remoter, you can share the screen of a Mac or any VNC-enabled machine, even Windows and Linux. You can do all this and more with Remoter, the easy way to share screens on your computer. Remoter is just $10.99, but wait. Go to store.remoterlabs.com. That's store.remoterlabs.com. Use the coupon code TNO to get 20% off. That's TNO to get 20% off. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I'd already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. Sure, there are winter specials, and then there are super winter specials at HerbalHealer.com. Battle through this cold and flu season with powerful, natural, and safe flu fighters like elderberry power, oregacillin, olive leaf capsules, grapefruit seed extract, and Resper 8, all specially priced during the winter sale at HerbalHealer.com. Don't forget vitamin D3 this winter. Right now, HerbalHealer.com has 120 soft gels, 1,000 IUs, sale priced at only $9. We also have a super winter special on six homeopathic liquid detoxes whole body detox liver detox kidney detox lymph detox brain detox and lung detox all liquid detoxes regularly $26.95 are now just $20 herbalhealer.com as always new customers get a free 128 page catalog with your order log on now and save big when you hit the winter specials at herbalhealer.com healing the world with nature one person at a time since 1988 That's what it sounds like when a burglar kicks in the door of a dark house that looks like no one is home. 
Don't let your home be the next target. Make it look like someone is home watching television with fake TV. Fake TV is a small electronic device that makes the same light as a real television. So from outside, it looks like someone is home watching TV. Fake TV plugs in just like a lamp on a timer, but is far more convincing to burglars. Fake TV deters burglars, costs far less than an alarm, and is highly recommended by numerous police departments. Use it anytime you're away from home. To order your fake TV for only $34.95, go to faketv.com or call 1-877-5-FAKE-TV. Each additional fake TV is only $29.95, so get one for you and one for a loved one for safety, security, and peace of mind for both of you. Call 877-5-FAKE-TV or go to faketv.com. FakeTV.com, the burglar deterrent. Hey, meat eaters, the freeze-dry guy wants to know, does your emergency food supply meet the standards for survival? Then get the 144-day meat variety unit from the freeze-dry guy. Our meat units utilize only quality Mountain House freeze-dried cooked ground chicken and ground beef, the undisputed choice for great taste and highest nutrition. The Freeze-Dry Guy's 144-day meat variety unit includes six number 10 cans of the very best freeze-dried animal protein for power you'll need when the going gets tough. Every meat eater's 144-day meat variety unit comes with a free medical kit and always free shipping to the lower 48. Need more than 144 days? See our one-year-plus meat eater's units at freezedryguy.com. And hey, the freeze-dry guy still has LRP rations, but they're going fast. Don't wait until tomorrow. Call now, 866-404-3663. That's 866-404-3663. Or go to freezedryguy.com and meet the standards for survival. What are you listening to? The Tech Night Isle Live with Gene Steinberg. What's going to happen next? You never know. We are back in time, enjoying old-time golden age of radio, and also how they try to transition the shows to television, and we went into Gunsmoke. James Arness becomes Marshall Mac Dillon, his defining role for the rest of his life. Just like Clayton Moore became the Lone Ranger on TV, his defining role for the rest of his life, Dennis Weaver became Chester, but he had a career after that. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I grew up pretty much a child of the 70s. So in my world, McLeod was one of my favorite shows. It was the CBS Sunday Night or whatever they called that, where they had McMillan and Wife and McLeod and Heck Ramsey and, of course, Columbo. So Dennis Weaver was, was big for me on that. But he was the first Chester. He was uh, Chester Proudfoot was the name of the character on radio when Parley Bear played it. Uh, some people might remember Parley Bear if you know the Andy Griffith show because he was the mayor of Mayberry in a number of episodes. Amazing how all those radio actors, if they looked the part, they'd get mm-hmm. into TV. They were great actors. And you had to be, if you can do a half-hour play every week and sometimes several times a week, you had to be an amazing actor because you're doing everything with your voice, the theater of the mind. You had the voice, but it's not just having the voice and being able to get into that character. Like, I heard a story, and this takes us to the sound effects. I heard a story that Jack Webb wanted his vision of the L.A. Police Department to be so authentic that when you heard him walking on radio at the opening scene, you hear him walking to his office, the number of steps he takes is supposedly the same as an actual number of steps between offices of the L.A. precinct he was emulating? Absolutely. He had an interesting vision that at the time, this is 1949 when he started that series, 
And he had done other radio. He had done uh, shows like Escape and Suspense, and he even led it, led a couple detective series, including uh, Jeff Regan, Investigator, right. and uh, Pat Novak for Hire. They were very stylized. They were very um, melodramatic and, and flowery even with the language and, and the way things were done. And Webb felt that he could make great, compelling radio but also be realistic. One of the things that he did, and, and Peggy Weber, who's a fan of, of, of my channel and was, is a great, great radio, television, and even film actress uh, in her 80s now, she uh, played Ma Friday on the radio version of Dragnet. And she was in her 20s. So, of course, no one could see her, so she could play any age she wanted. And she tells the story about how Webb first decided to do Dragnet. And he, would do, he wanted actors who wouldn't act. Earlier, we talked about William Conrad, who played Marshall Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke. Fantastic voice, a great radio actor. Uh, Jack Webb didn't want to have anything to do with him uh, on his show because Bill Conrad was too much of an actor. He wanted people to sound natural and realistic. So Is would- it true, by the way, on the TV show, he put up the lines on teleprompters and people had to read off it without any rehearsal? You know, I don't know the TV stuff as well. Uh, I do. It doesn't surprise me in the least. He certainly... Uh, was trying to find that balance between sounding like you weren't acting, but also not sounding wooden. And although people would obviously joke about Jack Webb's character as Joe Friday was pretty wooden, he didn't want it to be um, unbelievable. He just wanted it to be less performed. One thing he did on radio was is he would set up the microphones. Now this is at a time when you're doing when you're doing radio, you would you would actually stand in front of a microphone. In many cases, for like the comedies and stuff, in front of a live audience. You would be dressed just in your Sunday best, just in a nice suit and stuff, and the women in dresses. You weren't in costume. And you would read from the scripts in your hands. You would read into the microphone. Very straightforward. What Webb would do is he would set the microphones up, and he would he would make the uh, actors stand away from them. Instead of in front of them, stand 10 feet away from them. And he would, cr- he would have the sound people crank the microphones as loud because he wanted to hear all the noises in the room. He wanted them to deliver the lines from a distance not so it sounded like they were far away, but because they were making up for that by cranking the volume, but to make it, again, sound more natural and realistic. And, again, he would constantly find actors that wouldn't work for him because they acted too much. He wanted it to sound like someone talking to him for the first time. If he interviews a suspect or a witness to a crime, that person has to sound like somebody who just saw a crime in the real world, not the show business world. Absolutely. And what always struck me as funny is if you listen to the radio dragnets, and, and, and I, t- I talked about this earlier, the same actors, folks like Vic Perrin and Harry Bartell, uh, Lawrence Dobkin, people like that, these actors would do the same roles over. I mean, they would come back every week and play a different character. And uh, Vic Perrin was a great example. Whenever he would be on dragnet and they would go to interviewing, and whether he was the suspect or whether he was a witness or whatever it was, I don't know if it came from the naturalistic acting or whatever, but he spoke like lightning fast. And when I listen to it, I'm just thinking, was that a conscious choice? And I think what happened is, is Webb probably determined that when you're quizzing somebody, especially somebody who might be guilty of something, quite often one defense mechanism is to speak really rapidly, you know, like you're sounding more sure of yourself, I guess. So uh, Supposedly, they had consultants from the L.A. Police Department on that show. Absolutely, yeah. It all started because Webb was in a movie in the late 40s. Uh, he just had a role as a, I think it was a crime lab or maybe a, a forensic lab person. He got to talking to the technical advisor who was an LAPD police officer. And the two of them came up with the idea of a realistic TV series. Uh, well, radio series first, and then it became a TV series. Now, the uh, point being, of course, he had the look of just a regular schlep, you know? 
you can imagine him being this regular working class guy who decides to become a police officer. He wasn't a hero in the traditional sense. Exactly. It was, uh, and the LAPD and most police departments across the country, but the LAPD loved it. You know, and this is, it's interesting because there's, there's uh, more recent books and movies that have come out since about how totally corrupt the Los Angeles Police Department was. We think of LA Confidential. <laughs> of course, exactly. In the 40s and the 50s, when, when Webb was doing this, it was a pretty corrupt police department, we've now learned. And yet, here is Joe Friday as their, as their representative for the nation. Uh, and he was a, a total goody two-shoes. Still lived with his mom, dated occasionally, uh, was absolutely didn't smoke, didn't drink, and of course was constantly taking down all these people who had all these evil vices. Uh, and, and, and I always love the episodes that deal with bribery or embezzlement or things like that because it turns out that the uh, police department that he was represented at the time uh, was involved in a lot of that stuff as well. But that's this a whole tra- other story, Gene. Sure. This translated very well to television, but after it left, they tried to bring it back with Harry Morgan playing his assistant. And if you remember the movie version with Dan Aykroyd, we have Harry Morgan playing the older version of Gannon being the supervisor to, I guess, the nephew of the original Joe Friday, because at that time, of course, this was long after Jack Webb died. But the thing here is, at that point, it became a cliche. This straight arrow motif from the 50s and 40s, you didn't think about this in the late 60s, you know. This point, we've had, of course, the summer of love. And Dragnet became, I guess, an anachronism. Yeah, I believe that's exactly why when people remember Jack Webb today of a certain generation, they remember the 1960 series, uh, you know, with with Harry Morgan and the the clash between. I mean, he could not have been more of a square because obviously you're right. He was in an era of uh, of of the hippies and and um, and uh, war war and 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 drugs and women's rights and all the kind of things that just didn't seem to, to, to gel with the old Joe Friday's world. Plus, he looked different, too. I mean, if you see the 1950s television episodes, he was a young fella. I mean, he started this. He was still in his in his 20s when he first started doing the uh, the role. And he was so he was in many cases, he was he was thin and he was youngish. And, and uh, although he had that sort of staccato, you know, monotone delivery down pat, uh, he was he was a different character than the one he fit. You're right. He fit in the era better than the one from the 1960s. That one was a middle-aged guy who just couldn't cope with the way the world had turned against him, I guess. I guess that's part of Yeah, I was going to say, Gene, the best double bill, if someone wants to enjoy it in today's world, you can find these old TV shows all over the place, is is watch watch one of the original Star Treks and one of the, um, the Dragnets from like the same year because it's a wonderful contrast of how they try to address the social and civil issues of the time with shows that, of course, are taking place in a different a different uh, parallel universe, I guess is what I'm looking for. And Star Trek was relevant and Jack Webb and Dragnet, well, at least he had Adam-12 and he had a UFO show, by the way. For listeners of our other radio show, The Powercast, Jack Webb once produced a show about UFO hunters working for the Air Force. By the way, we have Greg Bell Radio Classics on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, 
lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwoods. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack. Of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Have you ever seen a U.S. postage stamp featuring Abraham Lincoln, Ben Franklin, or George Washington? If you're into stamp collecting, you know it's a fun, affordable hobby. America's leading stamp dealer is the Mystic Stamp Company, and they want you to have their free 140-page color catalog. Go to mysticstampad.com, the website of the Mystic Stamp Company, serving stamp collectors since 1923. Mystic Stamp is well-known in the industry for its experience, superior customer service, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Go to mysticstampad.com to request your free 140-page U.S. stamp color catalog packed with collecting tips special offers, color photos, and over 4,600 available stamps. Call 800-433-7811 or go to mysticstampad.com. That's 800-433-7811 and ask for your free U.S. stamp catalog or mysticstampad.com. Mystic Stamp Company, America's leading stamp dealer. Iodine protection packs from HempUSA.org are now in stock for immediate delivery worldwide. Our iodine protection packs include micro plant powder, green life kelp, red palm oil, and our clear roll-on iodine that will feed the body the iodine it needs. All iodine protection packs are in stock, save you money, and ship for free in all 50 states. Visit HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. HempUSA.org has a revolutionary wonder food for detoxing the body and rebuilding the immune system. Micro plant powder can help unclog arteries and soften heart valves while removing heavy metals, virus, fungus, bacteria, and parasites. Plus, it cleans and purifies the blood, lungs, stomach, and colon. Keep your body clean with micro plant powder. Visit us at HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. That bears repeating. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. And Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse is the key to digestive health. Pro-EM-1 is a powerful liquid probiotic, strong enough to cleanse, gentle enough to use every day. Pro-EM-1 is dairy, wheat, and soy-free, contains all natural and certified organic ingredients, contains no preservatives or animal products, supports a healthy digestive and immune system, supports weight loss, improves absorption of food nutrients, aids in controlling yeast infections, is never freeze-dried, and uses three groups of live, viable, beneficial microbes to cleanse and remove toxins. Order Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse at Terraganics.com, spelled T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com, Terraganics.com. Or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Pro-EM-1, the raw probiotic.
You never know what's going to happen next while listening to the Tech Night Isle live with Gene Steinberg. We have Greg Bell, host of Radio Classics on Sirius XM Satellite Radio with Gene Steinberg on the Tech Night Out Live, a journey through the past about radio and how, of course, they try to transition characters from radio to TV. The Shadow never really made it to TV. I think they tried once to do it on TV once or twice. They had some movies. We had, of course, the Alec Baldwin movie in the 1990s, Over the Top. But otherwise, The Shadow died. They tried to bring other characters from radio to the movies and TV. We had the Green Hornet. And we all right. remember Bruce Lee playing Cato on TV lasted one year by the same guy who brought you the Batman series. And then they tried to make this horrible movie with Seth Rogen as Britt Reed, the Green Hornet last year. It was dreadful. Is that part of it? They were never able to take a lot of these series that seemed perfect for movie. They could do it with Superman. They couldn't do it with the Green Hornet. And they've never really done it that well with the shadow. I've always wondered that if, uh, although you're right, it succeeded with Superman, uh, serials way back when even Superman was still fairly new, but then the more famous stuff with uh, Christopher Reeve. And the thing is, is I wonder today, and, and we keep doing it, we keep trying to bring back superheroes, but I'm not sure if you can really call them all successes by any means. I think a lot of them uh, fall flat because there's a pre-existing understanding, a pre-existing notion of exactly what these characters are. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the Green Hornet, for instance, it was not a comic book, which a lot of people think it was because it's, it seems to fit in that category of Batman and Superman and stuff. It came from the creators of the Lone Ranger. Exactly. It was, it was like he was a descendant of the Lone Ranger. But, but you, know, I, you know, I know they're making a Lone Ranger movie, and I guess we're going to find out whether or not that can work. Uh, Johnny Depp as Tonto. I'm worried about this. <laughs> exactly. And I believe the guy um, – the Lone Ranger is going to be played by the guy that was in the uh, Social Network movie. He played the twins, uh, Army Hammer, I believe is his name. But the thing is, is, is we've learned that it, you almost can't do uh, an accurate portrayal. You have to take it into camp or comedy in order to just sort of recreate a different way. I mean, there's only a few examples where you really are able to, to capture that. And the radio shows, look, I mean, they tried it with – they tried it and succeeded with a number of things. And they also tried and, and failed. And I think you don't really know until you put it out there whether or not it's going to work as a visual thing. Uh, the shadow, I thought, I always thought would never work as a visual thing because the whole gimmick was the fact – the whole, the whole storyline behind the shadow and even many of the episodes sort of fall apart when you, you look too closely. Uh, if nothing else, here's a guy who his entire superpower was his ability to cloud men's minds, which means through some odd hypnosis, he could be in a room and they couldn't see him. And in order to make that work, and I know they tried it with the Alec Baldwin film, but to make that work as a visual, it, it's, you know, how do you do it? Sometimes you have to go way over the top and that destroys the magic of the character. And maybe the magic is that it all happens in your mind. You listen to the voice, you listen to the sound effects, and you imagine what the shadow looked like or didn't look like. And did he have to wear a crazy, ridiculous costume? No, because you couldn't see him. He didn't need a costume. But for the movies, and they made movie serials of the shadow, he needed a costume. There you go. I have a fast question here. Mm -hmm. Now, in the 40s, there was a big fight. You had Captain Marvel and you had Superman. 
Captain Marvel, of course, young Billy Batson says the magic words, Shazam becomes the world's mightiest mortal. They had a pretty decent movie serial, 1941, Tom Tyler as Captain Marvel. One of the best special effects movies of that era, I think. But was Captain Marvel ever on the radio? Uh, not that I know of. It wasn't. It wasn't one that that had any kind of a radio life. It, interestingly enough, uh, Batman was never uh, its own series. A lot of people think Batman was radio, but Batman, it's a strange little thing. Batman would just show up on Superman on occasion. Right. There was once a like a seven, eight, nine episode arc where someone impersonates Batman. And they got everything confused there where some people knew Batman was Bruce Wayne and they didn't know. Bruce Wayne knew that Superman was Clark Kent, but Robin didn't. I could never figure it out. Well, and and the other thing is, is whenever you put Batman and Robin up against Superman, you just find out how how not super (laughs) Batman and Robin are. You know, they don't have any true superpowers. They're just really, uh, really uh, cool guys with a lot of nice gadgets. Uh, and that it seemed to be every episode of Superman uh, and Batman on radio just consisted of Superman having to rescue them over and over again. It was like they were the lowest lane for that for that storyline. Right. At least in the movies, they could concentrate on the Batman universe. And I hope they don't try to bring the Batman universe and the Man of Steel universe together. <laughs> Let's just go back again, because you were mentioning earlier how some people, some stations recorded these live shows to preserve them. We know the story of the Captain Video science fiction TV series in the 50s, and they lost almost all those recordings. So once you get these recordings, and if they're done in the home, they can't be a very good quality. You have to go through rather extensive digital enhancement to make them sound good. Right. There's a wide variety of ways that they were saved, and there's a wide variety of ways they've been restored. Uh, in my world, you know, for Sirius XM Radio Classics, I work with a company uh, called Radio Spirits. Radio Spirits is the end-all, be-all for quality, restored, commercially released uh, old-time radio shows. And they, so they've got the art, they've got the system down. They know how to, to do this. They have, I was at their warehouse not that long ago just to see what they have. And they have walls and walls and walls of stuff that has not been restored yet. And it was saved on everything from, you know, from the, after World War II, it was magnetic tape. Like people would know today, reel-to-reel, or even younger folks might know cassettes or even eight tracks or something. But it was the actual magnetic tape. Prior to that, they used primarily what was called transcription discs or transcription wire. Now, wire, the best way to describe it is just a, a steel wire. It looks sort of like soldering wire if you've seen that. And they would actually cut the audio into it. And the same thing with the albums. They would cut into the album in order to create it. Some of those are remarkable, in remarkable condition. They, they sound wonderful and fresh. They sound free of surface noise because they're using digital processing, so you don't hear the ticks and pops. Sometimes you hear a little surface noise, but it's amazing that 90% of the things that you present on Radio Classics, it sounds as if they recorded it yesterday, even though this stuff is 70, 80 years old. Well, and I give credit to the restoration process and all the tricks you can do now with, with digital restoration, but you also have to give credit, as I said, to the original recordings. Because you can listen to some of these original recordings if they're on the right medium. They sound as good as they were if they were made yesterday. Ironically, the ones that have the most problem are the ones that were, are off magnetic tape. It turns out that the reel-to-reel tape and that tape will actually um, disintegrate and lose quality quickly, or not quickly, but more easily than an 80-year-old album. Or Take 80. a 20-year-old reel-to-reel tape and see what kind of sound you get out of it because the magnetic coating would flake off especially poorly manufactured tapes. 
And when these guys restore this stuff, this is this just blows me away. And 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 not to get into a whole other story, but I was I was a film major, so I mean, I, I initially studied the history of old films and the silver nitrate and all that. So I know about the the quality of the actual meat stuff dissolving. But the reel to reel cases, sometimes they only have one shot to save this old show because the the reel to reel tape disintegrates as it runs through the record head. As so they had to play it back. once, get it digitized. Yeah. And then work on the processing. So they'll play it back with multiple things recording it. Now it's hard drives, but it, DAT tapes or, or CD burners or whatever. And they will uh, they'll, they'll have one shot because once it rolls through that, once it plays, the tape is gone. Mm. So I bet there are thousands and thousands of radio shows out there, hidden treasures that maybe we'll never hear or maybe someone's attic somewhere. They Absolutely. go into the attic and suddenly there's a wealth of treasures. Well, we're finding them, and we're bringing them back, darn it. Well, it sounds like it, because every week on Radio Classics, oh, this is new to the network, new to the show, and you have more stuff. And as you say, look, they're doing 52 shows with no rest a year for 20 years, or maybe they're doing it two or three times a week. And you've got to think, all those thousands of episodes, all of those amazing characters from radio, and we're discovering them. Final question before we have to let you leave the building with Elvis, Greg. <laughs> Do you find a lot of younger people are discovering radio, golden age? Absolutely. This is the entire reason that the channel was created 10 years ago. And I also do when radio was on a number of radio stations. And the whole reason I did this, I'm in my 40s. I was too young for the golden age myself. And the whole reason that we created this, yes, I'm happy that people listen that remember it from the past, but it's to introduce it to a new audience. An entire generation that didn't know Gunsmoke was on TV, let alone that it started on radio. And in my world, that was always the goal. And we found that it's quite a success. People on their way to school with their kids listening. Folks, uh, college campuses sitting around dorm rooms listening. Great storytelling is great storytelling, whether it's 80 years old or whether it was done last week. The show is Radio Classics. It's on Sirius XM Satellite Radio Channel 82, right? Absolutely. And it's there 24-7, and they have the schedules online. And it's not just playing the shows, but hearing Greg Bell tell you the background about the actors celebrating birthdays, about the other work they did. Greg Bell from Radio Classics, thanks for joining us on the Tech Night Out Live. My pleasure, Gene. Anytime. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. If you own an Apple iPhone and love to listen to your favorite programs on GCN, I've got good news for you. I'm proud to announce that GCN has a brand new iPhone app available for our dedicated listeners at GCNlive.com. Listen to your favorite hard-hitting GCN programs live or on demand right on your iPhone. And the best part? The GCN iPhone app can be yours absolutely free. Download the iPhone app today by clicking on the banner at GCNlive.com. Again, that's GCNlive.com. We the people grow cotton, weave fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit, and carting to a private bank, having it lent back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Ted Anderson, I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. Welcome back to the Tech Night Owl Live, where you never know what's going to happen next. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. 
We have Dan Frakes from Macworld Magazine, and we're going to cover some of our expectations about Apple and the next iPad and some other stuff that he's written about. Dan, welcome to the show. It's been a while. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, about the March 7th event being held in California. Mm -hmm. And two of your colleagues, Jason Snell and Dan Morin, the tag team, as you say, will be going there. So tell me, what do you expect Apple to reveal? We've got all those rumors. What's your expectation? Knowing it could be wrong. Well, I think the the most obvious one is a new iPad. I think we're going to see a new model there. Uh, although I, I I think I think there's going to be a new model. I think we're going to see a better screen, probably a faster processor, maybe uh, maybe some 4G LTE wireless. Although I wouldn't be surprised if Apple decided to hold off on that for now. But I think we're probably also going to see Apple keep one of the current models around at a lower price. I I, I think that that. They've been doing that, you know, for years now with the iPod Touch and with the iPhone. And I think it's something that naturally works for the iPad as well because the the cheapest one is, has been $500 since the original iPad. And now they've got all this competition from, you know, the Kindle Fire and from some Android tablets coming in. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the current iPad, the iPad 2, uh, maybe one with less storage uh, coming in at a lower price than the current 499. So I, th- I think the iPad line is going to be sort of the focus of the event. But I also I think we're probably going to see a new Apple TV or at least additions to the Apple TV's features through software. One of the two. Uh, the the new iPad's probably going to going to have 1080p HD support, and so it wouldn't make a lot of sense if Apple didn't add that to the Apple TV. What you would have to think does the processor. <laughs> in there have the capability of handling 1080p, they might need a new model. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it could go either way. I think the processor that's in there can handle 1080p. I think that when they've taken it apart, like the folks at iFixit and see and seeing what's in there, that it could probably handle it. But um, at the same time, you know, it's been around for a couple of years now. It has been about a year and a half, I guess. And it wouldn't surprise me to see just a new model altogether. Uh, and... And, and new software, obviously, for it. Um, it would be nice to see some more features, maybe to see some more content providers on there, maybe get a Hulu uh, option on there. Although I was just talking to uh, to Chris Breen about this yesterday, that, and I'm probably going to write a little article about it. Next we should week. tell our listeners Chris Breen is one of the other senior editors at Macworld. Go ahead. Right, right. And uh, we'll probably write, write us something about this next week. But I think the other thing we might see in this area, I, the, um, the uh, Apple TV, is I would I think it would be great if Apple would release a, a new remote for it because they're still using you know it's a little fancier and shinier now but it's the same Apple remote they've had for gosh I don't know how many years that essentially has six buttons and it just you know I'm sure you've probably used the Apple TV it's I just, do not like that remote because I think the buttons feel awkward to me they're well, not even, smoothly operated I'm not saying the number of buttons is sure. wrong. Sure. I'm saying that they feel bad. It's kind of awkward. And well, also, the range of operation is very narrow. So if you don't point it right at the Apple yeah. TV, it doesn't pick up the signal. Right. I mean, it's an infrared remote, which has its limitations. But also, even if you like the feel of the buttons, the the fact is that, if especially with, with the additions to the Apple TV, what it can do now compared to when it first was released, you're essentially having to navigate all these menus, some of which are really long now, especially now that... The Apple TV has iCloud, uh, or excuse me, iTunes Match and iCloud built in, so that you can uh, browse your entire music collection from the Apple TV. 
you know, up and down arrows just don't cut it anymore. Uh, those of us who have iOS devices, we can use Apple's remote app and that makes it much easier to use. And it's just a much better solution. But what about all those people out there who don't have iPhones or iPads? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Apple offer. And I think it would be an option not built in, you know, not, not packaged with it because it, it would add expense. But for people who don't have an iPhone, they want to, or an iPod touch or an iPad, they want to be able to have in front of the eye, Apple TV all the time, a, a remote that's more conducive to the new interface and to the new features, uh, something like maybe a magic trackpad type thing that you can hold in your hand and just swipe up and down menus and things. And I think they would probably nowadays, uh, they would probably use Bluetooth for that rather than IR, which would make it even better for what you were complaining about, which is that then you wouldn't have to worry about pointing it directly at the little But, sensor. you know, I have other remotes that use IR, and they don't have as narrow an operating range. I just think it's a badly designed remote. But it would be nice to see an expanded version of the Apple TV. Yeah. And I'll go back with you in a moment about the iPad 3 or whatever it's going to be called, the iPad HD, which is what some people might be calling it now. But let's get into the Apple TV if Apple's doing all this stuff, an expanded Apple TV, maybe a faster processor, more memory, whatever, I presume because of the state of technology, it'll still be a $99 item. It's still a hobby. But is Apple actually still going to consider expanding into a real TV set? I don't know. I've never really put too much stock in that rumor. I know that some people have based their career the last few years on predicting it. But to me, uh, it's a product that I mean, geez, if the Apple TV is a hobby, then making a TV is an even bigger hobby because, you know, for $99, you can basically, anybody out there now could pick it up. You know, it's, it's inexpensive, but it's, it's something that anybody can just grab on a whim. It's an impulse purchase for a lot of people, hook up to their existing TV, and then suddenly Apple's got a way to get their content and, and the, the iTunes store and all this stuff right into people's living room. Whereas if they wanted to do an, an, a TV, first of all, I mean, the TV market itself is just, it's a mess in terms of people figuring out what's the best technology, what's, what are the specs, what you know, brands. I mean, if Apple wants to make a real impact, they would have to go in there as, as they do in the computer industry, which is, this is a simple solution that gives you a really good product at a reasonable price. And that's hard to do for any of the vendors right now. So that's challenge number one. Number two is that if they did this as a TV not only are you expecting people to add your your product to their home entertainment center, but you're you're asking them to get rid of the centerpiece of that their their, their existing TV and replace it with Apple's version, and that's you know that's a big thing. It's a big expense, and, and I don't know. To me, that seems like a much bigger hurdle for Apple and a, and a much riskier business to get into. Now, I'm not saying they're not going to do it as a as sort of a niche where they say, okay, for the people who really want. A full TV, maybe we'll we'll offer that, but I think that um, I don't think they're going to be replacing the Apple TV with an actual TV anytime soon. And you have to think that most of the key functions that you'd have in such a product could be embedded within an Apple TV set-top box, right. unless Apple has some brand new technology in terms of generating the picture. But then I think most people agree that TVs today all are good to excellent, very few bad ones. They're very cheap, and where could Apple make a difference with the kind of technology they have? Because if it's interfaces, again, the Apple TV would be the mechanism with which right. to provide that interface. Why would it be necessary to do anything else? I've been skeptical, too. 
But you have to think here how Apple has spooked the industry. We have companies like Lenovo. At the Consumer Electronics Show, they have a smart TV. Why did they do that? Probably because they perceive Apple's going to have one. They want to get in there first. It's kind of like before the iPad came out, all these companies expecting Apple to get into that space came out with tablets. As soon as the iPad came out, most disappeared because they realized they were chasing the wrong animal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the one argument I've seen in favor of Apple doing an actual TV is just the whole simplification idea that, that um, if you've got the Apple TV built into the TV, people can just come home, set it on their, you know, on their TV stand, plug it in, and everything works. But the thing is, is that that assumes that the only way you're getting content is through the Apple TV. And if you aren't, then you still got to hook up your Blu-ray player, your cable box, et cetera, et cetera. And at that point, you're, you know, all the things you're trying to avoid are still there. So it just seems like, you know, now I'm going to step back and say, before Apple released the iPhone, everyone was saying the same exact things about why they would never do a phone. And they turned around and basically turned the entire industry upside down. So Yeah, but it has to be, to be where right. a need is perceived yeah. that Apple thinks it could fulfill. Like, for example, with smartphones, they were clumsy and difficult to use, and power users and business people were the ones who tended to buy it. Apple made it consumer-friendly. We have the consumer-friendly Dan Frakes joining us. He's from Macworld. I'm Gene Steinberg. I'm from the Tech Night Owl Live. Say, wouldn't it be great if that computer keyboard sitting on your desk also worked with your iPhone? Sending a text message would be lightning fast. This is exactly the idea behind the Matthias One keyboard for iPhone and Mac. You just need to experience it once to see how incredibly fast and convenient it really is. It's also available for the PC and BlackBerry. Visit onekeyboard.com slash TNO. Once again, onekeyboard.com slash TNO. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I'd already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. Making the right decisions is a challenge to investors. Are we going to see economic growth, slide into a recession, or at worst, depression? Hi, Ted Anderson from Midas Resources. We all know when a company acts irresponsibly, divesting ourselves in a move towards safety is prudent. When the market becomes volatile, U.S. Treasuries are a safe haven. But what do you do when the U.S. government overextends itself and spends beyond its means? Many investors are turning toward gold as a common-sense alternative to traditional paper investments. Midas Resources has put together a powerful book titled 10 Reasons to Own Gold, discussing costs, benefits, risks, featuring full-color illustrations, weights, and measures. The book is free and can be yours by calling 800-686-2237. Paper investments are dwarfed by gold's 6,000-year history. Discover how gold may be right for you and your IRA by calling 800-686-2237. Whether buying or it's time for you to sell, the book is free. Call 800-686-2237. 
In the past, I've taken a lot of different vitamins, some through health food stores, some that friends recommend. Colleen talking about her experience with Super Sea Veg. And with the Super Sea Veg, I was seeing a lot better results. Super Sea Veg with Vita D and C-Cal is the most powerful dietary food supplement in the world today, and nothing else comes close. Super Sea Veg is a whole food that makes me feel good. Think of Super Sea Veg as the unvitamin. I have taken other things, and they just didn't work. This seems to work for me. And Super Sea Veg comes with a 90-day money-back guarantee. Store-bought vitamins do not have the supplement and the full, whole feeling I have from Super Sea Veg. Get 15% off your first purchase on our website, superseaveg.com. That's super, S-E-A-V-E-G.com. At checkout, enter coupon code UNVITAMIN. Or place your order at 866-SEA-VEG. That's 866-732-8344. Eating Super Sea Veg daily is eating right. Would it save you time to get the best quality water filters and the best quality storable foods from one company? You bet it would, and now you can at BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com. Big Berkey water filter products and great-tasting, long-lasting, storable, wise foods are both now available on one website, BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com. Wise foods, ready-to-eat meals are packed in airtight nitrogen pouches and come with a 25-year shelf life. Big Berkey water filters are powerful enough to purify treated, untreated, or even stagnant pond water. Combine Berkey water filters with wise foods for an unbeatable preparedness combination. Get free shipping on every order over $50. And GCN listeners receive 5% off all ceramic filter systems. Visit big, B-E-R-K-E-Y, waterfilters.com or call 877-99-BERKEY. That's 877-99-B-E-R-K-E-Y or go to bigberkeywaterfilters.com. Welcome back to Tech Night Out Live, where you never know what's going to happen next. And now, it's Uncle Gene. Yeah, it's him. With Anne Frakes of Macworld, we continue some predictions about the things Apple might do. And one is the possibility of a TV set. A smart TV set, whether Apple would get into that space. And right now, as he agrees, it's a mess. Lots of companies, lots of products. But the key is that we saw in the iPhone, Apple felt a need for a product that was consumer-friendly and would offer the things that smartphones couldn't offer in terms of all those extra apps and all the great stuff that the iPhone has. With tablets, again, tablets didn't go anywhere. They didn't go anywhere in the market. People were not buying tablets except for vertical market industries, so Apple found a need. They filled it, just as, for example, the Mac is the computer for the rest of us. We don't need a TV for the rest of us because TVs are already for the rest of us. And the problems with TVs these days is when you have to select multiple peripherals, and certainly if the Apple TV can replace the need for some of those things, it gets its own marketplace. But how do you deal with the cable companies and the satellite companies and all the content they deliver? Apple can't replace that unless they get into that business. Well, well, right. I think that that's the key is that with the iPhone and later the iPad, Apple was able to to give you everything in one package. You know, they, they, by giving you the iPhone, all the things that people said they wanted to have in one place, Apple could do. And they can't, I don't want to say they can't, but I'm, I'm going to say I'm highly skeptical that they can do that in the uh, home entertainment market because you've got to go in and you've got to replace 
the cable box, the the movie streaming services, the Blu-ray or DVD player, because you know the majority of people still watch movies on DVD and and Blu-ray. Yeah, uh, you know everything that that people do in their home entertainment center, it's going to be tough for Apple to squeeze that into one box, and unless they can do that, it's not as compelling or as a, as must as a must-have product as it as as the iPhone is. Now, when Steve Jobs was quoted in that biography as having cracked the secret, I kind of think he was expecting at that point, he wasn't long for this world, that when people read that book, they would be spooked, especially manufacturers (laughs) trying to figure out what was going on. And he's probably laughing wherever he is up there at how people are reacting to that statement. So you're saying he he just said that for the laughs, is that, that for kicks? Well, that- <laughs> maybe it indicated something they were doing, yeah. but he said it in such a way that he knew how they'd react. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt that Apple has been working on this and working on it hard over the last few years, and I expect that. And, and on Wednesday, when we see a new iPad and maybe a new Apple TV, I, I, I'm sure they're going to announce some of these new deals with content providers, um, enhancements to the existing deals that they've been working on, but. Uh, I don't expect that them to, for them to have suddenly, in the course of a year, uh, gotten all rights to all TV channels and all cable channels and all uh, movies and video uh, so that people can get rid of everything and replace it with an Apple TV. So uh, until that happens, I don't think we're going to see the Apple TV be, take over the world like some people are claiming. Also, Apple would be streaming the content, and we know what goes on when you fill the bandwidth of the ISPs with content. We have the Obviously, the controversies over AT&T and data throttling. Yes, even the cable providers have limits to how much data you can download. Most people don't approach that limit. But if Apple is feeding high-definition content eight hours a day, you know you will exceed the limit from your ISP very quickly, and they're not going to like it because they're losing their TV business. I think it's going to be very complicated. It's not going to happen the way we Mm -hmm. want. But back to the iPad. Okay, so it's an iPad 3 and iPad HD. I would agree from what you said earlier in the previous section that Apple would consider keeping the iPad 2 in the lineup, maybe an 8-gigabyte version for maybe 299 or 349 because suddenly the people who would buy the Kindle Fire at 199 will say, you know, for $100 or such more, I get a real iPad. Why do I need this stuff? Right. Yeah, I thought it was funny in the um, <laughs> one of the Kindle ads – is essentially for the price of a of a of a of an iPad, you can get a Kindle Fire and a Kindle Touch and a Kindle, and they've got a point in that it's a lot less expensive. But at the same time, uh, one of my friends, who's not really a techie type, even said, "Yeah, but you know what? Even if you've got all three, you still can't do half of what you can do with the single iPad." So I, I think if Apple is able to to keep that iPad two, one of them in the lineup, and like you said, maybe it's just an eight gigabyte model. Wi-Fi, um, even for like three forty-nine or or three ninety-nine, you know you've got a you've got a two hundred and fifty two hundred dollar Android tablets out there for somebody to say, well, you know, another hundred bucks, and I've got an actual iPad instead of settling. Uh, I think that's going to do wonders for uh, for the people who said that that the Kindle Fire is an is a is an iPad killer and and uh, is is going to help Apple take a lot of that market away from from these Android tablets. There's other speculation that the so-called iPad 3 or iPad HD may cost somewhat more because of the higher resolution display. 
I'm skeptical. I don't think Apple wants to go above the price because today, four ninety nine is suddenly looking expensive for a tablet. It wasn't a couple of years ago. Oh, well, I agree with you. I still don't. I still think that four ninety nine for what the iPad is and does compared to some of these two ninety nine tablets uh, still seems reasonable. But I do agree with you that um, for a couple of reasons that you know I don't see Apple raising the price on this, and one of them is just that. Um, like you said, you're just going to increase the price relative to what's coming out, which are sort of getting cheaper and cheaper. And the other thing is it's just not Apple's style to do that. I mean, Apple, with, with one exception I can think of, and that is the, uh, the Mac Mini uh, when they raise the price, Apple's, Apple's um, you know, their, their, their custom, if you will, is to keep every new model the same price and just add stuff to it. So the model you get this year costs the same as last year, but you're going to get more power or you're going to get better specs or better resolution or what, what have you. Uh, and so I, don't, I, I think that Apple is going to keep the price the same for the entry-level model. I think also they're put in a position there where Apple is able to buy so many of these LCD panels that maybe, yeah, it will cost more at the beginning, but if Apple orders three or four billion dollars worth, they'll keep the price down and Apple will absorb a somewhat lower profit margin now, knowing six months from now, a year from now, it's going to be a lot cheaper. Right. And, and also a lot of these analysts that are making these predictions, they don't have the inside knowledge about what kind of deals Apple has, has negotiated. And one thing we've seen over the last, say, five years is that because of the just obscene numbers Apple's able to sell of things, they're able to get prices on components that other vendors can't even approach and so some of these some of these analysts will go in and they'll talk to you know to 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 hp and say well, how much do you pay for these screens and then they just assume that apple's paying a similar amount or a little less when it turns out who knows maybe apple's paying half that because they've told the the screen vendor look we will buy everything you've got if you give it to us at, the, at this price and apple from what everything i've heard their, uh, the people in their supply chain uh, are just, you know, they're kind of overwhelmed by Apple's skill at negotiating these sort of huge, huge purchases of components. And so um, I think a lot of the people who are, who are speculating about prices and stuff, uh, they've been shown to be wrong. I mean, remember when the iPad first debuted, all the same analysts were saying, this thing's going to cost 900 or $1,000. Ha, ha, ha. This is going to cost something if we don't do this break. We have Dan Franks at Macworld. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night How Live. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes... The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S 
Attack, Attack of the Rockaway, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. That bears repeating. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. And Pro-EM1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse is the key to digestive health. Pro-EM1 is a powerful liquid probiotic, strong enough to cleanse, gentle enough to use every day. Pro-EM1 is dairy, wheat, and soy-free, contains all natural and certified organic ingredients, contains no preservatives or animal products, supports a healthy digestive and immune system, supports weight loss, improves absorption, of food nutrients, aids in controlling yeast infections, is never freeze-dried, and uses three groups of live, viable, beneficial microbes to cleanse and remove toxins. Order Pro-EM1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse at Terraganics.com, spelled T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com, Terraganics.com, or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Pro-EM1, the raw probiotic. What if pain could be reduced, ailments could be alleviated, physical and mental stress could be eased, and blood circulation increased, all by simply lying down? Introducing the original Biomat. The Biomat is an FDA-registered medical device that combines deep, penetrating infrared space-age technology and revitalizing negative ions with the incredible healing power of amethyst crystals. A Biomat can boost your immune system, relieve pain and stiffness, reduce stress and fatigue, and assist in detoxifying your body. Join the thousands of people reporting relief from chronic pain, fibromyalgia, arthritis, sports injuries, insomnia, and much more. Each Biomat comes with a lifetime trade-in and three-year warranty. Learn more at bio-mats.com, spelled bio dash. M-A-T-S dot com or call 360-944-8692. That's 360-944-8692. Visit bio-mats.com today and enhance your life with a Biomat. That's the sound of your door being kicked in by an intruder with a single kick. That's the sound of the same door now protected by the Door Sentinel at MySafeDoor.com. Go to MySafeDoor.com right now and watch the amazing video. At MySafeDoor.com, you'll learn how to turn your home into a fortress with the Door Sentinel. 16 kicks later, and the Door Sentinel is still holding strong. MySafeDoor.com. That's MySafeDoor.com. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237. What's going to happen next? You never know when you're listening to the Tech Night Owl live with Gene Steinberg. On the Tech Night Owl live, Dan Frakes from Macworld. We're speculating on the next iPad being the iPad 3, and now there's a statement it might be an iPad HD because of the higher definition display what it will cost, whether Apple can get away with keeping the prices same. Our conclusion, probably they can because they have more money than Poland. <laughs> well, don't forget, we're probably also going to see new software for the, uh, for the iPad because of the higher resolution. I, I, don't, I think they might show a preview of the next version of iOS, but at the very least, 
there's got to be some changes under the hood if this new iPad has uh, the features people are talking about. Um, well, I should say I'm hoping that along with that comes, for example, Siri. It would be great to get Siri on the on the on the new iPad. The claims that I've read are that the the reason Siri is currently uh, limited to the iPhone 4s is because of uh, audio processing that goes on behind the scenes that the iPhone 4 can't handle. Uh, and I'm guessing that an iPad 3 or whatever you would like to call it is going to have at least that kind of processing power. And so it would be great if we can now get Siri on the iPad as well. I'm not so much concerned about LTE support, if Apple has that for the 4G networks. Okay, so things will download faster. But I think they're fast enough for most people now that extra speed, it's not going to come into play in too many cases, even if you're viewing high-definition video. Let's move on to a couple of other topics. So Tim Cook speaks before the Apple shareholders meeting. And what we're seeing in Tim Cook here, his leadership compared to Steve Jobs is relatively different in this respect. Jobs, it was black, it was white. He loved you, he hated you. Tim Cook is far more nuanced. What's your assessment? I mean, we've seen a few bits of Tim Cook over the years whenever he would come up during presentations with Jobs. But uh, over the last few weeks, we've seen a couple instances, one being the uh, financial, the, the latest financial um, results meeting. He did an interview at Goldman Sachs a few weeks ago, and then he did the shareholders meeting. We're starting to finally get some direct one-on-one, if you will, um, interacting with Tim Cook and seeing sort of more of his personality come out. And it's interesting because, like you said, they're very different people. As Tim Cook, we're seeing he has a pretty good sense of humor that you never really noticed before because you didn't hear much from him. Uh, he's fairly soft-spoken, but at the same time, he makes it clear that he's in charge. And he's, I think, more, the most important thing, though, I think, for a lot of people who watch Apple is that despite him being the new CEO and and being very different from Steve Jobs is that he still seems to have the same view of the company as Jobs in terms of what's important to the company, what they need to do, what is the right way to do things. And so in that respect, uh, he's not that different than Jobs, which makes sense because you know, Jobs brought him in and because you know he thought that he was the right person for the company, and he's essentially been grooming Cook to be his successor for, for years now. And remember, we don't know exactly how many decisions that Apple ultimately made came from Cook. Remember, mm-hmm. he's run the company more or less for the past few years because Jobs was on sick leave. Right, right. Whenever he was officially out, Cook was the, uh, was the acting CEO. So he's definitely been doing this for a while. Exactly. So we have to see. I think people now are kind of expecting things have to change. Well, the walled garden at Apple is going to loosen because Cook is a calmer sort of person. But then he was steeped in Apple's philosophy. So, yeah, there may be nuanced changes in the way the board of directors works and the way management works with employees in terms of employee donations and stuff to charities. But I think overall, when it comes to products, it's not going to change. But here's another reason why they say there's a change. Okay, so when the announcement came from Mountain Lion, Mm -hmm. it was different. It was not just an Apple media event. And I guess having two media events three weeks apart would have kind of diluted the impact. Apple calls up journalists and about a week or so ahead of the announcement of Mountain Lion, Macworld, a lot of other people get these MacBook Airs with the pre-release. And they get a briefing from Apple. Now, everyone's saying this is new. But if you remember, Dan, it's not new. During the Mac OS X public beta, 
That's kind of what happened. Apple called the media before the release and gave them copies. Yeah, I know. I agree. I think it's a little too early to to try to mark this up as, as a new Apple because, like you said, it, this was only a few weeks before they knew they were going to have one of the biggest events of the year, and they don't want to dilute it by having a huge other event to, to announce the OS. I, I think that we're going to have to wait a little while longer to see if this is really the way Apple is going to be in the future because – it's still it's a lot of the same PR people on the PR team there. It's still a lot of the same exec, most of the same executives. And we know just from working with Apple over the last few months that a lot of things haven't changed much in that respect. So I think we'll, you know, we'll see within the next year or two if things are really different under Cook or if uh, he's kind of just staying in line with the same way things were under Jobs. Although there are a few other changes. Like, for example, now they, they publicly instituted their, their uh, charity gift matching program. Uh, and they've right. been doing, and they they've been a little more open about responses to news events. For example, this whole thing with the Foxconn factories and everything. Uh, under, over the last few years with Jobs, you know, usually when something like this happened, there would be silence from Apple for for weeks, if not a couple months, while Apple stepped back and took a look at everything, and then they finally just came out with one statement, and that was it. Uh, Apple, you know, made a number of comments to news media outlets in the in the in the uh, in the the days after that report came out, um, Cook wrote an email to all the employees, which clearly was leaked to someone in the press because everyone got it as soon as it, as it came out. Uh, and those kind of things didn't happen quite the same way under Jobs. So, so there are some signs that things might be a little different, but um, I think we need to wait a while to make any kind of definitive judgments. Focusing on Mountain Lion in general. Now, some people in the press are saying, you know what, it's coming out now because Apple wants to react to Windows 8. But they seem to ignore the fact that you don't just throw out an operating system full-blown. This is something that had to be planned years in advance. Oh, sure. I, I, obviously, the, uh, the operating system has been in the works for I – mean, I mean, let's, let's face it. Apple is always working on the next OS before the current – you know, the new one ships. So before Lion even was released last year, I'm sure Mountain Lion stuff was already in the works. That's just the way Apple's always done it. Uh, but that being said – I think there's some merit to the fact that Apple decided to publicly release information about it when they did, uh, in that Windows was, was you know Windows 8 was going to be announced soon, and there was some some interest building, and all of a sudden Apple comes out and says, "Hey, oh by the way, our new one's coming out in a few months too." Even though we just did another just did a new one a few months ago, we've already got another one coming out. Unlike this one from Windows that has taken how many years? So. Uh, well, I, I Windows takes three years. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think there's no there's no doubt that that the the time it came out uh, was more than coincidental. Exactly, and I think when they announced Windows 8 last year, it's going yeah. to be supporting more gestures. There'll be a version for tablets, ARM processors. It was a response to Apple. So what Apple is doing now is just step two. Lion was step one, kind of a clumsy step, in my opinion of adding elements from the iOS and bringing them to the Mac, I think Mountain Lion is a more elegant solution. But that's just my opinion. No, I would agree with that. I, I mean, I think the iOS elements that were brought into Lion, some of them weren't done as well as they could have been. And I think that Mountain Lion is refining that a little bit uh, and bringing some other things that make sense. And then also doing more integration with iCloud because now Apple's got essentially two platforms and they're trying to bring the two so that they interact better together. Uh, and I think a lot of the stuff in mountain lion is aimed at, at, at better integration 
and making it easier for people to use both at the same time while still keeping them separate, uh, you know, at, at their heart. Because the truth is, is that Macs are Macs and, and iOS devices are iOS devices. And, and Tim Cook has already said they're going to be separate. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. like Microsoft trying to make the tablet, the ARM-based product, exactly the same as Windows 8. Because they're different types of products, and they have to recognize that. That's more nuanced than Microsoft is capable of, by the way. But we look at the adaptation curve. When you're moving from one device to another, and you have to do similar things, they may be done in similar ways, so there is a point where you have to get accustomed to it again. You'll just jump back and forth from iPad to Mac and not have to take a second and think about the difference. We have Dan Frakes at Macworld. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs convert from so many formats i can't even list them download now to see if graphic converter is good for you like one and a half million other users guess what you could save money when you buy graphic converter use the coupon code night owl use the coupon code night owl to get a special price for graphic converter go to lemkesoft.com that's l-e-m-k-e soft.com lemkesoft.com l-e-m-k-e soft.com Do you know which 37 crucial food items are going to fly off the shelves when the next disaster hits? If you don't, you and your family may be without food and waiting in long food lines after a big disaster strikes. You would be surprised how many people don't have these food items right now. 123survivalplan.com has set up a For Patriots Only video with inside information on the 37 food items that will sell out first when the next disaster strikes. The video on 123survivalplan.com has crucial information you and your family need to prepare for any disaster, natural or man-made. And you won't have to be afraid of going hungry or being sent to a FEMA refugee camp. See the video that over one million other smart patriots have already seen in the last four months. Prepare now. Go to 123survivalplan.com and learn which 37 food items you should hoard. Easy to remember. 123survivalplan.com Again, that's 123survivalplan.com Powerful forces are trying to destroy your health. It's a fact that we're surrounded by a sea of environmental toxins from mercury and vaccines and dental fillings to aluminum and chemtrails to pesticides and toxic chemicals sprayed all over our food. Even nuclear radiation, which is still spewing out of Fukushima, has contaminated the water and food supply in the U.S. But there is a solution. Liquid Zeolite is an extraordinary natural formula which safely and effectively removes all kinds of toxins from the body, including capturing heavy metals, 
pesticides, viruses, and radioactive particles. Use liquid zeolite from RestoreYourHealthNow.com for fatigue, headaches, digestion, memory loss, influenza, and joint pain. Zeolite comes with a money-back guarantee and is available at RestoreYourHealthNow.com. Learn how to get free bottles of zeolite at RestoreYourHealthNow.com or call 800-880-9976. That's 800-880-9976. 100% safe, 100% amazing. Try liquid zeolite today. Iodine protection packs from HempUSA.org are now in stock for immediate delivery worldwide. Our iodine protection packs include micro plant powder, green life kelp, red palm oil, and our clear roll-on iodine that will feed the body the iodine it needs. All iodine protection packs are in stock, save you money, and ship for free in all 50 states. Visit HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. HempUSA.org has a revolutionary wonder food for detoxing the body and rebuilding the immune system. Microplant powder can help unclog arteries and soften heart valves while removing heavy metals, virus, fungus, bacteria, and parasites. Plus, it cleans and purifies the blood, lungs, stomach, and colon. Keep your body clean with microplant powder. Visit us at HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. Live with Gene Steinberg, it's the Tech Night Owl, because you never know what's going to happen next. With Dan Frakes at Macworld Magazine on the Tech Night Owl Live with Gene Steinberg, our final segment here. We're talking about Mountain Lion, and I was saying, Dan, before we broke, that what Apple is doing is not so much integrating the two operating systems, but making them work as closely as possible for the end user so the end user doesn't have to waste time figuring out the differences. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's the, the goal behind most of these changes. I, I would agree there that Apple is trying to make it easier to, to move from one to the other so that when you have been using your iPad for a few hours, then you go to use your Mac a lot of the things work the same where they work familiar enough that you're not having to make this huge mental uh, mental adjustment and also that's you know that's both for current users but it's also and i think as much if not more so for new users people who have an iphone or have an ipad and currently don't use a mac because as well as the mac has been doing over the last few years it's still you know 5 to 10% of the installed basic computers there's still a lot of people out there um many of whom have iphones or ipads or an ipod touch who don't use a Mac. And so Apple is saying to them, look, you know what? You've had this iPad. You love it. Come into our store and take a look at, at the Mac, and you'll realize that it does a lot of things the same way. Not exactly because they're not the same machine, but they do a lot of things the same way, and we think you'll feel comfortable with it. And so their, their hope is that more people will buy a Mac because of that. Because then, you know, otherwise they go home to their Windows machine or whatever they happen to be using, and it's just this jarring juxtaposition between this, this elegant tablet OS and their desktop OS that's completely different. And I think Apple's hoping that there's a big marketing advantage to that similarity. And I think their trick is trying to to do that without alienating a lot of the longtime Apple users. And there's going to be some that are unhappy no matter what, uh, sometimes justifiably so. Uh, but Mountain Lion feels less like we stuck some iOS features on the Mac and more 
like we were talking earlier about, uh, feels more like they've, they've done some better integration without turning one into the other. What they've done is put in some of the system apps in a slightly redesigned interface with the same name as the products on the iOS. So when you look at them, you know, okay, messages, iMessage, whatever. It's not iChat. It's not a completely different name. But Apple's been doing this for a while. Consider the keyboards. Now, for many years, of course, keyboards on the desktop Mac and on the notebooks would be different. And you'd switch from one to the other, and you'd have this period of mental adjustment to adapt. And then they decide to stick the same kind of key tops on the Apple aluminum keyboard as on the notebook. So you go back and forth. They kind of feel the same. Yeah, and... And and that's something a lot of people complained about at the time because they were used to the higher quality keyboards for the desktop Macs. But uh, but I think two things happened. One is that uh, Apple started making the notebook keyboards a lot better, and so people weren't. It wasn't like you were you were giving up on a, a good keyboard to 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 make that switch. But also a lot of people were using both, you know, the desktop and the laptop more frequently, and they were starting starting to see this advantage to being able to go between between the two without having to make an adjustment. And as somebody who tests keyboards at Macworld a lot, I can tell you when I've been typing all day on one type of keyboard and switched to another, there is that there is a period of adjustment where I've got to sort of make some mistakes and get the new, get the feel of the new one. And so uh, overall, I think that that's probably a good thing for most users. Yes. It also makes you more productive. Think about that. Makes you more productive. If you don't have to think and do a mental adjustment from going to device to device, Everything is smooth, just like iCloud, for example, when apps will support iCloud on your mountain lion. Supposedly, you work on a document in one machine, then you go to the other machine. The document is there already, the same version, the same content. You just continue working. Again, productivity for businesses, and Apple's now being taken more and more seriously in businesses. Yeah, well, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's definitely the case. I'm, I'm, there's still... Not cons- there's still a lot of companies out there that aren't looking at Macs as 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 a true candidates for for replacing their computers. But the iPhone and the iPad are doing wonders for that. In that, um, a lot of companies. I think it's I forgot what the number is an astounding number, but it was something like eighty percent of the Fortune 500 companies now have official support for iPhones and iPads within the company. Uh, and and for somebody who's been following Apple for you know ten twenty years. Anybody who's who's been following them for a long time knows that's just that's amazing. I mean, it's something that you couldn't have imagined 15 years ago. Exactly. Apple has become so famous and such credibility. But now we look at the other side of the fence. This week, Microsoft comes out with the consumer preview of Windows 8, which is no better than the release last year. And I was looking at the features. I don't know how far you follow the Windows world. I was looking at the features in Windows 8, all the new features, and it looks like it's all Metro all the time. And then maybe there are a few other things. Yes, we know there'll be a version for ARM processors. There's something about being able to boot the OS from a USB stick. But other than Metro, there doesn't seem to be a lot. It's like they're sticking this face on there to replace the start menu. Once you click on that, it's still Windows with a few minor changes. Well, I think it's a. I think it's a little more than that, and that they've basically said, "Look, we realize that the traditional Windows interface is one dated, uh, but two is just 
totally inapplicable for the way computing is going in terms of more tablets, more smart, smartphones, uh, eventually touchscreen computers. And I think somebody, somebody at Microsoft finally said, look, we've been doing this wrong. We've got to take a step back and say, okay, let's just start over. And they can't really completely start over because of the Windows installed base and because they've got to have some of that compatibility there. But from an interface point of view, they've really kind of just thrown out the the thrown out the old Windows way of doing things and have put in, like you said, the Metro interface, they've called it. You can still see some of the Windows stuff underneath. If Once you start working with files and stuff, there's still a file manager and things. But uh, I do have to say that it's. I think it's the right thing for them to do. For one, it's bold and it's it's a it's a huge change for them. And I think that they needed that because over the last five five six seven years, they've really been hurting in the public perception. And that Windows, you know, the the most recent version of Windows is actually was a was a big step up over over Vista, but it was still Windows. Uh, they had this issue where, when it came to smartphones and tablets, people just didn't even think of of Windows. I mean, when, when someone talked about mobile operating systems, they thought of Apple, they thought of Google, and they thought maybe of WebOS. Uh, Microsoft didn't even enter the picture. And so they've now come out and said, we're going all in for mobile. And I think it's the right thing for them to do. Uh, it may not work out as well as they'd hoped, and, but, but it's, not a bad, it's not a bad interface for mobile devices and they're trying to do kind of what Apple's doing here, which is that if we're going to make a good OS for mobile devices, we need to make it easy for people to transition to their desktop. Um, what, what I'm curious to see is, like you, if once it's finally out and people are using it, if that interface works on a laptop or on a desktop PC as well as it does on a, on a phone. And I have a tablet. question whether it works that well because Windows Phone hasn't done well and the Zune, which also had kind of that tiled interface, didn't do well either. So the question I've raised is why take something that really hasn't shown itself to be hugely successful and just bring it somewhere else? Was it easier to develop that way, just take it over? The Windows Phone, the new Windows Phones, the one with, um, with a 7 or 7.5 that have come out in the last year or so, uh, they're actually pretty good phones, and the reviews of them are actually pretty good. People have said, yeah, this is actually it, – it's completely different, but it's different in a good way, and it's not a bad UI. I've actually got a Windows phone here that I was testing. While I still much prefer iOS, uh, I have to give them credit that it's completely different from the old Windows phone, which was bad. I'll and tell you it, what. We'll have to see also how Microsoft fares with it. Yeah. Dan Frakes, tell our listeners where they can find more of your stuff. Oh, you can see us at uh, macworld.com. Simple as that. You can find my stuff in lots of places, so I'll enumerate them. On Twitter, we're Tech Night Owl. We're Tech Night Owl at Twitter. You go to technightowl.com to see my cutting-edge commentaries. You check out our forum at forum.technightowl.com, forum.technightowl.com to see the kind of stuff we do and get these discussions going. We'll talk a lot about the new Apple products, the new iPad and everything else over the coming weeks and Mountain Lion and that sort of thing. We have that other show about UFOs and things that go bump in the night. The Paracast at Paracast.com. It's Paracast.com. Dan Frakes, thanks for joining us this week on the Tech Night Owl Live. Thank you, Gene. The Tech Night Owl Live is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. We'll be back next week. Same bad time, same bad channel.